This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN, 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good morning to you, wherever you might be. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio. It's KOPN, your imagination station, and it's the home for Radio Orbit coming to you every morning on Sundays, uh, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m., Every week, I should say, not every morning. I don't think I could handle this if I had to do it every morning. 
but once a week is just lovely. And uh, again, 2 to 5 a.m. every Sunday morning, Radio Orbit, coming to you live here on KOPN. And uh, my name is Mike, and I'll be with you till 5 o'clock this morning. It is uh, just a little after 2 in the morning on uh, the 23rd of January in the year 2005. And tonight we've got a great show lined up for you. I've got an interview that I'm going to be airing in a, about 45 minutes with Dr. Paul LaViolette. Dr. LaViolette is a Ph.D. astrophysicist um, with uh, some incredible ideas and theories and information to share with you guys. I did the interview about a month and a half ago, and I was waiting for the right time to air it. And uh, this weekend uh, is the perfect time to air this interview um, for a number of reasons. Uh, but uh, we'll get to those coming up here. So anyway, coming up in just a little while, Dr. Paul LaViolette, uh, an amazing astrophysicist who I've been speaking to for the last few months and uh, whose material I've been familiar with for about the last five years or so, and he's an amazing guy. So uh, so get ready for that. That's coming up in just a little while. Thanks to Gail for setting things up nicely, as she always does on Heart and Soul, playing some lovely rhythm and blues music as she does every week, and uh, try to stay warm out there, Gail, going home. It's pretty chilly out there this morning. And uh, it was incredible, actually. I was driving in, and uh, I always have these interesting stories when I'm on my way into the station <clears throat> in the middle of the night on Saturday. And tonight, of course, it's really cold outside, but uh, it's really clear as well. And there's incredible uh, stargazing opportunities tonight out there because it's so cold and so clear. But anyway, I came out of my house this morning, and took out my two little puppies that we got last weekend and let them pee outside so they don't pee in my house for the 50,000th time in the last week. Anyway, as I was standing outside in the freezing cold with my dogs, a shooting star just blazed right over my head uh, from the north uh, into the direction of the south, and it was really bright, and it probably burned for about a second and a half, and uh, I thought, wow, how cool that was. So anyway... A magical night out there tonight, even though it's cold. There's also some really neat things going on. So uh, keep that in mind when you're bundling up and putting your scarf on and your gloves on and your mittens up. Uh, make sure you turn your eyes up as opposed to turning them down when you walk outside. It's amazing how many things you'll actually see if you actually look up. We have a tendency to keep our focus forward and down for the most part, but uh, uh, always nice sometimes to look up as well. Okay, uh, let's get things going here. Thanks for all the emails. I appreciate it. Uh, hello in particular to Deborah. I appreciate all the things that you send me, Deborah, and uh, read every word. And I agree with much of what you say. And I think the work that you're doing with the children is awesome. And uh, that's where it's at. And uh, I hope some of the kids are listening to this program as well because um, hopefully they'll see that it's a little bit different than uh, some of the other things that are going on out there. But anyway, I uh, hope they listen to this program. Tell them to. All right, Deborah, And uh, you keep listening as well. Thanks a lot to everybody else out there who sent the nice emails and uh, who calls in and uh, pays attention and actually keeps me, me motivated to come up here every week and do this again on the following weekend. <clears throat> so... Uh, that's where we are. Thanks as well to everybody listening over the web. Uh, we're working on some uh, some technology that will hopefully 
make the availability of this show even greater than it is right now. I'm looking into some of the new ideas such as podcasting, and I'm talking to a new, uh, to a friend of mine who is a uh, technological capability outstretches mine by quite a quite a margin and uh, anyway he's talking to me about helping me out with the website and doing some archive things with me that might make it more uh, a little bit more simple and uh, and increase the level of quality of the archived programs as well so I'm working on all that stuff and uh, bear with me uh, for now it's what it is uh, you can check things out at www.radioorbit.com that's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T dot com, RadioOrbit dot com. And uh, you can also send me email if you have questions or comments or concerns or uh, ideas for future programs or anything like that. You can always send me email at OrbitRadio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL dot com. That's orbitradio at AOL.com. And you can always go to the website, radioorbit.com, and uh, contact me from there. Uh, let's see, what else here? In the station, in the studio, the number here, area code 573-874-5676. That's 573-874-5676. And uh, 1-800 number, if you are outside of the 573 area code, is 800 895 Five six seven six. That's eight nine five K O P N. All right. So uh, uh, with that in mind, uh, write those phone numbers down. By the way, too. Uh, actually, you may not want to write them down after you hear what I'm going to tell you, but uh, write them down anyway. This is sort of the unofficial kickoff of the pledge drive, uh, K O P N's winter pledge drive. We're actually calling it the "We Couldn't Do It Without You." pledge drive because that's actually true uh, we can't do anything without the listeners here at KOPN all of the programming that you hear on this station is brought to you by and supported by the listeners out there in the mid-Missouri community and uh, although pledge drive actually starts Sunday morning uh, actually I take that back Monday morning tomorrow morning I thought that I would uh, try to start things off on a good note um, because I have I actually have an interview tonight that I'm going to be uh, playing that was recorded a while back the phone I'll actually be able to answer the phones uh, during that interview so if people are interested in calling and uh, pledging a little bit of your hard-earned money to help keep radio orbit on the air and help keep KOPN strong and uh, and growing well that would certainly be appreciated I'll be doing it uh, this week asking you for your help and for your support and I'll also be doing it next week. Uh, but next week, I actually have a live program that's going to be... Uh, uh, I'm talking to Nick Cook, the former aerospace editor at Jane's Defense Weekly from London. And that will be a live show, and I'll have him on the air uh, from London. And because I'm here by myself in the studio on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings, it will be a little bit more difficult for me to answer the telephone with all the hundreds of calls, all the all the uh, the plethora of listeners that want to call in and donate their money to this radio program. So anyway, if you find it in your heart and in your wallet to uh, help me out and help Radio Orbit stay on the air, 
uh, that would be much appreciated. And you can call me anytime tonight, and I'd be glad to take your pl- uh, take your pledge. And uh, there's lots of uh, cool stuff that you can get back from the station and uh, from me, from this show in particular. I have some special things that uh, that I'll be giving away to uh, to listeners who who help support my show. So that number is. Five seven three eight seven four five six seven six and one eight hundred eight nine five five six seven six for those of you out there who would like to pledge your support for KOPN and for Radio Orbit. So uh, I'll probably be mentioning uh, mentioning that a few more times as the show goes on tonight. Okay. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, tonight's guest, Dr. Paul Laviolette, like I said, a PhD astrophysicist, a total freaking genius, and uh, with some incredibly amazing, interesting things to tell you about uh, the solar system and the galaxy in which you live. So we'll come back with Paul in just a little while. It's actually kind of a long interview. It went longer than we had originally anticipated because. Uh, well, we just kind of got going. So I'm going to have to start it a little bit earlier than I normally would, um, which means we kind of got to squeeze everything else in here, too. We'll do space weather in just a moment, which is uh, kind of what we're going to dev- devote the whole show to tonight uh, because of what uh, Dr. LaViolette uh, and I talked about and because of all the recent uh, activity in the skies above our head. We're going to be talking primarily uh, in this first hour about space weather and uh, solar activity and the events on the sun over the last week. And um, we'll do that in just a minute here. Uh, let me run through some upcoming guests real fast. I did the email address and the, um, and the website. As I said, next week, Nick Cook, former aerospace editor for Jane's Defense Weekly, talking to me about anti-gravity technology and the incredible book, The Hunt for Zero Point, that Nick wrote a couple years ago. Uh, and I just finished reading, uh, fi- finished reading. And it's an amazing account of the uh, pre-World War II and post-World War II covert black operations research projects into sophisticated and advanced propulsion techniques, including the manipulation of gravity through its relationship with electricity. So anyway, incredible stuff we'll be talking to Nick Cook about next week. And in fact, Dr. LaViolette and I covered a little bit of this stuff in his uh, interview that you're going to be hearing tonight. In fact, Dr. LaViolette was a major contributor to some of the work that Nick Cook did in his book. And uh, in fact, one of the um, uh, at the beginning of The Hunt for Zero Point, Mr. Cook thanks a number of people who were Uh, relevant in helping him complete the book and uh, Dr. LaViolette is one of the people right at the top of that list so these interviews uh, this week and next week kind of dovetail together pretty well okay so that's uh, coming up next week Nick Cook we've got Rupert Sheldrake coming up Uh, Cheryl Clapton Um, Cheryl is a singer songwriter musician guitarist artist mystic incredible woman who lives here in the Columbia area and uh, Cheryl and I will be talking on the air maybe playing some music as well <clears throat> in a few weeks and uh, it'll be a little bit of a departure for me but uh, uh, we have a lot in common Cheryl and I and it'll probably be a fun conversation with some great music mixed in so I hope that you tune in for that when we uh, when we do that program in just a few weeks maybe in March actually because I think March is Women's History Month, so we'll try to have some some female guests on the program next month, Cheryl Clapton being one of those. 
uh, Richard K. Moore. Uh, I was supposed to talk to Richard sometime in January, although January got pretty booked up, but we'll do him in the next month or two. And uh, Michael Heisen, Dr. Michael Heisen, coming up again. Um, I'm probably going to do a solo show one of these uh, weekends, probably not next weekend, but maybe the following one. I have to do a show by myself because, as I said last week, and this week is no different, there's so much going on right now that uh, over the week as I'm collecting information and collecting stories uh, that I'd like to share with you during the program every Sunday morning, uh, for the last three weeks, four weeks, I've had so much material that... I'm literally sitting there going, well, what am I going to talk about? Because I want to talk about this and I want to talk about that. Um, but I only have time for this and that. And there's literally so much going on that I want to share with you guys. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to get to a lot of it because of interviews and um, uh, current events that are taking precedence over that stuff. So in a couple of weeks, I'll do that and I'll try to clear my, clear my slate and cover some of these topics that I haven't been able to get to over the over the last few weeks. And uh, we'll do a full show with just sort of news and information in a couple weeks. And uh, I also have, um, well, just have lots of other people lined up. One guy in particular I haven't heard back from, but uh, Dr. Ralph Abraham, a, uh, uh, a mathematician and a brilliant scientist uh, whose work in chaos and chaos theory has literally changed the whole face of mathematics uh, mathematics itself. Uh, over the last 15 to 20 years, in my opinion. And hopefully uh, Dr. Abraham, who was an associate and friend of Rupert Sheldrake and Terrence McKenna before Terrence died, um, uh, hopefully he will find the time and uh, the heart to spend some time with me and with you guys on this program. So that's coming up, all right? Uh, Like I said, Pledge Drive tonight and next week. Anything that you can... uh, um, find in your heart and in your wallet in your pocketbook to uh, donate to KOPN and to Radio Orbit I'd be appreciative of that you can call at 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676 to do that uh, to help support this program and help support community radio and by the way uh, the guests and the subject matter that comes up and is covered on this program I can pretty confidently say that nobody else in the mid-Missouri region is doing what we're doing here on Radio Orbit. And I hope that the few of you out there uh, who listen to the program realize that it really is um, a unique and different means of information transfer. And I hope you understand that I do it for you guys as well as I do it for me. Um, And I just hope you'll take that into account when you you think about... uh, uh, about possibly uh, using some of your own money, your own dollars, uh, to help keep this program on the air. All right, we'll be back in just a minute. We'll do space weather and uh, get the program rolling. Okay. In the meantime, this is Toad the Wet Sprocket. Like I said before, uh, when I was coming in, I saw this incredible shooting star, one of the first things I saw when I woke up this evening. So... Uh, with that in mind, this is Fly from Heaven, Toad the Wet Sprocket from Dulcinea on KOPN's Radio Orbit. Paul is making me nervous. Paul is making me scared. Looking to this fool who swaggers like his 
Toad the Wet Sprocket from Dulcinea Fly from Heaven. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And uh, let's get into space weather here real fast. Okay, first thing, uh, if you want to see something cool tonight, go out and uh, check out Saturn. It's pretty easy uh, if you go out maybe 6.30, 7 o'clock, right about that time. Oh. Look directly toward the east. You'll see the full moon, and uh, the full moon will be rising. And if you don't see the full moon rising, then it's too early. And depending on the time uh, zone that you're in, uh, you'll have to wait for the moon to start rising. But anyway, as soon as the moon starts rising, if you look down just below it, you'll see a very bright gold-colored star. And that is not a star at all. It's the, the planet Saturn rising with the moon and uh, it's a real cool sight, and you'll be able to see that for the next few nights, including tonight. So uh, also, if you have some binoculars or a telescope, it'd be a nice time to take a look at the moon and, uh, and have a gaze down there at Saturn as well. Now, um, because of the solar activity that we've had uh, over the last week, which I will talk about here in a moment, and in fact, I was going to have uh, Kent Stedman from Cyberspace Orbit our solar genius pal uh, on the air for a few minutes to try to give us an update, uh, but he wasn't able to do that tonight. <clears throat> we'll probably have Kent on the air maybe next week for a few minutes in the first hour because I think he's going to want to comment on some of the things that Dr. LaViolette talks about as well tonight. But uh, anyway, um, for uh, uh, to give you an idea of the solar activity that's been going on in Europe right now, they are experiencing aurora borealis in northern Europe right now, unprecedented, unlike anything that these people have seen in a long, long time. Um, I've read all kinds of different accounts uh, from people in Ireland and uh, uh, some of the other... Uh, um, uh, up in uh, Norway and some of the other countries up there in the northern latitudes of Europe, and they are taking incredible photographs and uh, and writing stories about just amazing aurora borealis that they're being able to witness right now. Uh, there's one one uh, uh, a couple of photos in particular that if you want to go over to uh, spaceweather.com, um, I get some information from over there. Uh, you might uh, check out some of their uh, aurora image gallery material because some stuff that's been coming out over the last couple of weeks has been absolutely astounding so anyway the reason uh that the auroras are so great is that uh well um there was uh there have been a number of super flares giant flares x-class flares over the last four days in fact there have been three x-class flares the last one being an x7 or 8 which is pretty high on that scale actually anything above uh, anything in the x class is a, is a is a huge flare but we're starting to get up uh, close to the double digits there and that's only happened once or twice before in recorded uh, history so anyway the uh, solar activity and the events on the sun uh, extraordinary uh, as uh, as they have been for some time now. So uh, anyway, that uh, coronal mass ejection, uh, those coronal mass ejections that are associated with these large flares have been slamming into the Earth's magnetic field, and uh, we're having incredible magnetic storms, and uh, it's screwing up radio transmission and reception all around the planet. And uh, anyway, just uh, a whole lot of energy being released by the sun, and that, of course, affecting the Earth and uh, 
everything about the earth, including all the people and the plants and the animals that live on the earth. We are all modulated, as it were, by the sun. The sun is the heart of our solar system, the solar plexus, as it were. So anyway, all of this stuff uh, emanating from a giant sunspot uh, that was called uh, Sunspot 720. And uh, that particular sunspot just rolled around the limb and is now traversing the backside of the sun. And uh, the sun rotates every 27 or 28 days. And uh, oftentimes big sunspot areas like this one uh, don't dissipate in that two-week period. And there's a very good chance that we could see that sunspot again in two weeks or so when it rolls back around. And if so, uh, we'll definitely uh, be uh, watching it here and talking about it here on Radio Orbit, okay? So uh, in the meantime, there are uh, a couple of other sunspots that in comparison to 720, uh, really not very uh, very concerning, but large uh, in and of their own rights. And that's uh, sunspot area 20, uh, 723 and 725. Those are both still on the front side of the disk and uh, potential for M-class and X-class flares certainly um, uh, from those two spots as well. So uh, the solar wind is clipping along at 730 kilometers a second, which is very fast. It was a th- it was over a thousand kilometers a second a couple days ago. Uh, I've never seen it over 900 myself. So anyway, um, uh, lots and lots of activity on the sun. Now. Uh, well, let's uh, finish one thing here, and then we'll get back to that. Uh, we always talk about potentially hazardous asteroids or near-Earth asteroids, Earth-crossing objects, objects that have the potential to crash into our planet if they get too close and fall into our gravity well here. Um, there's nothing, uh, nothing striking on the on the menu right now, none that I can see at least, and... Uh, as always, that's the case, though. The ones we know about, those aren't the ones to worry about. So uh, nothing on the radar right now as far as potentially hazard- hazardous asteroids. Now, um, back to these extraordinary events that are happening on the sun. Uh, I want to take that one step further and talk about some events that are happening on other suns in and about the cosmos. Um, there is a phenomenon that is called a gamma ray burst. And uh, I'm not going to go into too deep of detail about what a gamma ray burst really is because it's one of the things that Dr. LaViolette and I talk about. And uh, I'm going to read a couple stories here that will explain some stuff to you about it. But in any case, uh, it's basically uh, a gamma ray burst is a burst of energy that's resultant from, uh, uh, from an exploding star. And... There are lots of different theories uh, about these gamma ray bursts and how they might actually affect the Earth and things that happen here on the Earth. And in a quantum universe, in a holographic universe where everything is connected, uh, my intuition tells me that they have an immediate and uh, 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 an immediate effect on the planet, whether it's a profound effect or a subtle effect is something that can be debated um, and is probably different with every particular occasion uh, and uh, the size of the burst, the energetic component of the burst, the proximity to the earth and our solar system, 
that the gamma ray burst occurs. So uh, lots of things um, uh, that are variable with these things, but the bottom line is they happen, and we have devices now uh, to monitor the skies and to try to pick these things out when they do happen. Well, there has been also an increased level of activity of gamma ray bursts that are being uh, that are being reported and documented by the uh, what's called the BAT, the telescope. They call it the BAT, B-A-T, and that stands for Burst Alert Telescope. So anyway, BAT's been picking up all kinds of uh, gamma ray bursts, um, and what some qualified scientists are saying is an increase in that level of activity. Uh, so we're going to uh, talk a little bit right now about gamma ray bursts and about galactic wave theory and some of the ideas that uh, Dr. LaViolette is going to be discussing with us tonight. Now, I found an old story from 2003. This was from September of 2003 from uh, The Guardian in London. And uh, it says, Did a gamma ray burst devastate life on Earth? Now, uh, before I read this story, um, I will uh, uh, preface it by saying that I don't pay, in my opinion, uh, don't pay too much attention to the time frames that are discussed in this story because uh, that is a topic of great debate and one that Dr. LaViolette um, has, in my opinion, the correct answer to and uh, uh, the theory that he has published uh, with regard and, 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 and which his PhD was based upon, by the way. Uh, he has a PhD in systems theory from uh, the University of Portland, uh, Oregon, and uh, a lot of it was based on... Um, this uh, galactic wave theory that he proved uh, using ice core samples in Antarctica. And in an interesting side note, uh, in his um, uh, core sample work, uh, Dr. LaViolette actually used the reactor here at the University of Missouri uh, to complete some of that research. So uh, interesting how the circles connect. But um, in any case, let me read a little bit to you here, and then I'll, li and then I'll read a little bit about some of Dr. LaViolette's theories, okay? All right, did a gamma ray burst devastate life on Earth? This is from London, September 26, 2003. A huge massive burst of gamma rays 443 million years ago could have caused one of Earth's worth, worst mass extinctions, says a group of astrophysicists and paleontologists in a report carried by this week's New Scientist. Using the pattern of triloet I'm sorry, trilobite extinctions at the time, the scientists say the pattern meets the expected effects of a nearby gamma ray burst. Although other exper experts have greeted the idea with some skepticism, most agree that it deserves further investigation. GRBs, which is short for gamma ray burst, obviously, GRBs are the most powerful explosions known. As giant stars collapse into black holes, which I also refute, I don't believe in the theory of black holes, but in any case, uh, this is just uh, the story I'm reading from. As giant stars collapse into black holes at the end of their lives, they fire incredibly intense pulses of gamma rays from their poles that can be detected even across the universe for 10 seconds or so. All the bursts astronomers have recorded so far have come from distant galaxies and been harmless on the ground. But if one occurred within our galaxy and was aimed directly at us, the effects could be devastating, according to astrophysicist Adrian Melo of University of Kansas in Lawrence. The Earth's atmosphere would soak up most of the gamma rays, Malat said, but their energy would rip apart nitrogen and oxygen molecules, creating a witch's brew of nitrogen oxides, especially the toxic brown gas nitrogen dioxide that colors photochemical smog. <laughs> 
Malo or Malat estimates that a burst would produce enough of the gas to darken the sky, blotting out the visible sunlight reaching the Earth. Nitrogen dioxide would also destroy the ozone layer, exposing the surface life to dangerous overdose of ultraviolet radiation from the sun for more than a year uh, until the ozone recovered. Uh, and they go on, on and on and on. Um, there are many, many effects uh, uh, that a gamma ray burst might possibly have on the Earth. Now, it's funny that uh, uh, they talk about, the first thing he says is their energy would rip apart nitrogen and oxygen molecules. And then he goes on to talk about uh, the ozone being destroyed and the fact that we wouldn't have sunlight. But uh, I think we should talk first about the fact that oxygen molecules are being destroyed. I don't care if there's smog, if there's no oxygen. Uh, anyway, that's just one. Uh, uh, that's just one one point here. But anyway, that's uh, just to give you an idea that this is something that is being talked about in the mainstream, and uh, uh, is a concern of uh, institutionalized mainstream physicists. Now, Dr. Laviolette has some different ideas on uh, on this, uh, similar if different, uh, but he is by far uh, the preeminent uh, information source on GRBs. He's been researching this stuff and writing about it for 20 years, uh, long before uh, most other people were even considering these things, and long before they had been, uh, and this is a significant point, long before uh, these things had been observed and documented. Uh, Dr. Laviolette's theories predicted them predicted them and uh, so with that uh, let me read a little bit about Dr. Paul Laviolette's idea on gamma ray bursts or galactic cosmic rays uh, okay might as well just start here galactic core outbursts are the most energetic phenomena taking place in the universe <laughs> now how funny because uh Huh. Anyway, sounds a lot like that article we just read. They probably pulled this off of his site. <laughs> anyway, the active quasar-like core of spiral galaxy PG0052251, for example, is seen to radiate seven times as much energy as comes from all the galaxy stars combined. Most of this is emitted in the form of high-energy cosmic ray electrons accompanied by electromagnetic radiation, ranging from the radio frequency on up to the X-ray and gamma-ray frequencies. A study of astronomical and geological data reveals that cosmic ray electrons and electromagnetic radiation from a similar outburst of our own galactic core impacted our solar system near the end of the last ice age. This cosmic ray event spanned a period of several thousand years and climaxed around 14,200 years ago. Although far less intense than the PG0052 quasar outburst, it was nevertheless able to substantially affect the Earth's climate and trigger a solar terrestrial conflagration that initiated the worst animal extinction episode of the tertiary period. The effects on the sun and on the Earth's climate were not due to the galactic cosmic rays themselves, but to the cosmic dust that these cosmic rays transported into the solar system. Observations have shown that the solar system is presently immersed in a dense cloud of cosmic dust, material that is normally kept at bay by the outward pressure of the solar wind. 
but the arrival of this galactic cosmic ray volley, the solar wind was overpowered, and large quantities of this material were pushed inward. The sun was enveloped in a cocoon of dust that caused its spectrum to shift toward the infrared. In addition, the dust grains filling the solar system scattered radiation back to the Earth, producing an interplanetary hothouse effect that substantially increased the influx of solar radiation to the Earth. Details of this scenario are, are described in uh, Dr. Paul Laviolette's book, Earth Under Fire, and in his Ph.D. Assert, uh, dissertation, as well as in a series of journal, uh, journal articles that he has published. Uh, and uh, for, uh, for your information, all of this stuff can be accessed at Dr. Laviolette's website at www.etheric.com. That's E-T-H-E-R-I-C. Laviolette's research suggests that the sun also became highly active as dust and gas falling onto its surface induced extreme flaring activity. Together with the radiation influx from the sun's dust cocoon, this caused the sun's corona and photosphere to inflate, much as is observed today in dust-choked stars called T-Tauri stars. These various solar effects cause atmospheric warming and inversion conditions that facilitated glacial growth which brought on ice age conditions. On occasions when the solar radiation influx to the Earth became particularly high, the ice age climate warmed, initiating episodes of rapid glacial melting and continental flooding. There's evidence that one particularly tragic solar flare event occurred some 12,750 years ago during a period when the sun was particularly active. This involved the release of an immense coronal mass ejection which engulfed the Earth and induced a mass animal extinction. Hmm. So, there you have it. Uh, that is uh, some snips from the research and work of Dr. Paul Laviolette, who we'll be having on the air here in uh, just a moment, and in an interview that I did with him just a little while, uh, little while back. So, anyway, we'll, we'll bring that to you in just a moment here. Let's play one more song, and uh, keep in mind what we always talk about in this uh, program, that small... Events, very small occurrences, can affect very large systems in profound and unexpected ways. The butterfly effect is real. It's the fact of the matter. And uh, there's a lot going on in this galaxy and universe of ours. So, all right, here's a great cover of uh, an old Elton John song. This is Roger Daltrey, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Back in a minute with Dr. Paul Laviolette. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN.
Yeah, that's uh, Roger Daltrey from the, the Lost Boys soundtrack. Don't let the sun go down on me. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And uh, we're going to start this interview with Dr. Paul Laviolette, Ph.D. astrophysicist and a friend of mine. And um, it's kind of a long interview. It's about an hour and 50 minutes, but we're going to weave a couple songs through it. So we'll get it going now and going to finish up in about two hours from now, just before Carol Greenspan's show, Jewish Spectrum, at 5 o'clock. And uh, uh, by the way, I'll uh, mention it one more time, even though the pledge drive hasn't officially started yet, I've got two hours where I'll be uh, just uh, listening to this interview along with you all and playing a couple songs in between. Uh, so the phones will be open and I can answer it if anybody finds it in their heart to donate some money to help keep KOPN strong and help keep Radio Orbit on the air. There's lots of uh, cool bonus gifts for anybody who donates any amount of money. My goal for this program isn't too high, but high enough that I can't afford to pay it all myself, although I will donate my own money to, uh, to keep my own show on the air. Uh, so anyway, uh, that uh, number is 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676 if you're interested in donating, becoming a member of KOPN, supporting community radio, and uh, being a part of uh, a part of the station and a part of the programming. And uh, to help support, keep this program, Radio Orbit, on the air, a show that is pretty unique in the mid-Missouri area. So, okay, uh, with that, uh, here we go. We'll... Uh, be talking to you in and out during this uh, interview. Hope you enjoy it, Dr. Paul Laviolette on Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5 FM. as always, and tonight my guest is Dr. Paul LaViolette. Dr. LaViolette is the author of a number of books, including Subquantum Kinetics, Beyond the Big Bang, Genesis of the Cosmos, and Earth Under Fire. He is a brilliant creative thinker who has published many original papers in physics, astronomy, climatology, systems theory, and psychology. He is recognized in the marquee who's who in science and engineering, and is the current president of the Starburst Foundation, something that we'll be talking a little bit more about later. Dr. LaViolette's discoveries, theories, and predictions, and subsequent verifications of some of these predictions make him, in my opinion, one of the most important and relevant scientists on the planet right now. And it is a true honor to have him on the program tonight. So without any more delay, let's say hello right away to Dr. Paul LaViolette. Dr. LaViolette, thank you very much for being on Radio Orbit tonight. I really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Uh, how are you doing? We're doing well tonight, and uh, looking forward to an interesting conversation with you. Um, as we talked a little bit off the air, some of my uh, listeners may be familiar with some of your uh, some of your 
research and information that you uh, deliver, but uh, there might be a, an element that are not familiar as well. So maybe you could give us a little background, uh, Dr. Laviolette, on um, just sort of uh, where you came from and uh, what your history is and how you got involved in this uh, stuff to, to begin with, and then uh, then we'll then we'll talk a little bit about what those things are that we uh, that, that that you've been working on. So. Well, uh, I was studying uh, physics at Johns Hopkins University uh, for my BA degree and uh, became a little disconcerted uh, with what I was being taught at that time because it didn't seem to explain a lot of questions. Uh, they were throwing a lot of theories at you that didn't seem to hang together. There was this uh, division of science. Uh, there was no uh, effort to weave different disciplines together right, right. and uh, so I started uh, doing some of my own exploration so to speak uh, trying to ponder uh, what is the nature of existence uh, at a very fundamental level and that from that early time uh, over the years I was developing this new approach to understanding everything I guess um, Existence is something that, or nature, doesn't really divide itself into disciplines. It's something we have done. Right, I agree. Uh, try to specialize in certain areas. But it doesn't mean that um, nature will operate really that differently in the, these different fields. And uh, as I thought about this and was pondering these things, I started developing a theory of systems. Uh, which is something that could be applied generally to all different fields, uh, chemistry, sociology, physics, uh, psychology. Okay. Hey, um, do, me an, do me a favor. Give me an idea of time frame. This was back in the uh, 80s, 70s. About when, were, when are we talking about here? In the 70s. Uh, actually, the late 60s. Okay. When I first was starting to try to develop a systems theory. Okay. Uh, and at that time, <clears throat> I wasn't aware that others had developed systems theory uh, because it was something that wasn't that well known. But there was a society that um, met uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. They'd have annual meetings together with them. Um, and this is the uh, approach that a lot of people followed in developing systems theory. It's because it was sort of a reaction to the specialization in science. It, uh, people who were looking for a more broad, uh, synthetic view of of science would often go on their own to try to follow this path. Right, and, uh, right, right. A lot of people I met later said that that's the way they did it until they discovered that there were other people that were thinking alike. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. A lot of the people that I talk to on this program uh, have... Uh, uh, have been through similar experiences, I think. Um, in fact, uh, just last week I uh, did an interview with a gentleman named Dennis McKenna, who's sort of from the same uh, same time frame as yourself, and although it was a different path, he has a very similar story. So, ah. In any case, okay, well... Um, from working on this, uh, one day I... Well, uh, after finding that uh, there was such a thing as systems theory and... Uh, reading a lot about uh, non-equilibrium systems. These are systems that are in a state of flux, like a candle flame, okay. uh, convection currents, tornadoes. These are examples. Geo um, geopolitical situation on planet Earth, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> 
society, uh, <laughs> right, right. Uh, biological organism, all these are examples of what they call open systems, okay. meaning that uh, the bodies or the, the uh, systems are maintained through a constant flux. And if that, uh, that change, that flux is stopped, uh, the system deteriorates. And it's, the law of entropy takes over at that point. You know, um, it's interesting to me because we we have this classical idea. Uh, you mentioned the body. We have this idea that the body is a is a closed system, for example. And I think that's sort of a not sort of, but it's a uh, that's a misconception. We we know that we have these fields, like you're talking about, that are emanating from from all living things, and those fields interact with other fields, and it really isn't a closed system, even though it may appear so. Yeah. Also, for example, uh, every seven years, they say, the, our body is made out of entirely new cells and material. Really? Uh, in fact, some parts of our body uh, have turnover rates of a uh, matter of days, uh, some of the cell uh, populations. Really, where they completely replace all of the cells? Mm. Uh, so this became uh, an interesting focus for me, was uh, seeing that... Uh, these principles of open systems, you found them in all different disciplines. And uh, then one day I had this uh, realization of that th this co these concepts could be applied to physics. Okay. This was uh, after learning about this uh, unusual chemical reaction that produced wave patterns. Uh, and I realized that this could be a model for a new approach to physics ah. based on the open system idea. Yeah, now do me a favor, refresh my memory. I know that that, uh, uh, that imagery that we're talking about is sort of like a bullseye shape or can also be uh, in the shape of a, uh, of a spiral, I think, if I, if I remember correctly. Is that what we're talking about? Yes, uh, the Belousov-Zabotinsky reaction, okay, named that. after the two Russian uh, scientists who discovered this. And what was the nature of that reaction? Uh, it's an open open system. It's a, or what they call non-equilibrium reaction, where you keep putting in uh, reactants to keep it going, okay. sort of like burning them up continuously. Okay. And there's uh, a cerium ion in there that uh, can go from one valence state to another, from valence three to valence four. As the as the reaction proceeds, uh, at a given point in the solution, uh, the Ethereum will, will change valence and then come back down, and so it'll oscillate back okay. and forth. And, okay. uh, later they found that if they put in a certain dye, they could see this as a color change from red to blue. And if, so if they stirred this continuously, it would the whole solution in the beaker would change first from red to blue, oscillating. Uh, this was called a chemical clock. And then they found if they poured this into a dish, uh, it would make these wave patterns. Okay which were not mechanical waves. These are chemical waves. Hmm. And so they look like red and blue rings, mm -hmm. like what you were saying, bullseye pattern. And uh, so r r what, what uh, connected for me was that in physics, uh, everything is it's really what they're talking about is waves. Particles are waves, uh, electromagnetic waves. And the wave theory in physics traditionally has been based on the mechanical wave model. For example, uh, the idea of light waves, they first got that idea. Uh, well, the first fellow was Huygens, and he was watching waves on the Dutch Canal. And 
so that model is kind of stuck in physics, that mechanical wave model. Okay, right. And uh, physics has sort of gone on along that path. Right. Now, uh, mechanical waves are something that's very accessible to observation, and so it's natural that that would have been the model to be chosen, I guess. Uh, chemical waves, uh, we only discovered them ourselves 50 years ago, 40 years ago. Okay. Um, so the mechanistic uh, idea is sort of the starting point, but it usually doesn't remain there if we uh, if we advance. Right. <clears throat> you find this that all the uh, various disciplines in, in uh, science had gone through a phase where they were once uh, th- their theories were based in mechanical models, right. and then as they found out more about what they were studying, uh, they replaced those with the open system model. Uh, like in biology, they thought of uh, human bodies like machines. Uh, the heart was like a mechanical pump. Uh, the brain was a cooler for the fluid. <laughs> <laughs> and only later they realized uh, yeah. that, you know, it's really chemical reactions are the basis of what's going on in the cells, and these are open systems. Right, very dynamic, uh, 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 very dynamic systems, right? Uh, yeah, and in the case of physics, see, physics is still stuck in that early stage of development okay. with the mechanical models, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the one, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> it's the one, uh, <coughs> one discipline where uh, it, things are so far removed from direct observation that uh, theoreticians don't really know for sure what's going on. Right. So it's um, it's sort of a nebulous discipline. It's open to people being maybe not being correct the first time with what they're suggesting. Right, right. Especially astronomy, uh, things being so far away, you can't really bring them into the laboratory to do tests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've always wondered with uh, astro astrophysics and things like that, just the sheer distances involved, and then some of the detailed information that gets uh, um, put out there, whether it's, uh, whether it's legitimate and valid or not, I always am just amazed that, you know, from something that may be distant light years away from us, that, uh, that X amount of information can be gathered about that, and then we have to take at least some stretch in order to, uh, uh, to believe that it's valid, you know? Now, in physics, uh, there's been this desire to come up with a unified field theory. Right, for many, many years. Something that will explain everything or unify all of physics. And uh, I think from the way they've been doing it, uh, that's really uh, an impossibility. Because you know the story of the blind men and the elephant, and each, each blind man was touching a different part of the elephant and thought it was a different type of thing he was touching uh, but it, this is kind of the way it is in physics uh, from the way they've been going about things because what they do is experiments in a very specialized area and then they see the observations and from the observations to create their theories and so they get like let's say use a hundred different types of experiments with a hundred different theories and then somebody has to come along afterwards to try to make them all fit together right so you have this uh, mishmash of all kinds right. of different things that t- yeah right uh, now the approach that I used which is a little different uh, what I did is to look at what happens in other areas of science where we do see what's going on 
and we see that as a rule, if there is a structure, it's an open system, and there and it, it obeys certain uh, there's certain rules like how it's formed, for example. Right. Uh, and that particular chemical reaction we were talking about a few minutes ago, that sort of gave you the insight into this. Yeah, like for example, how how do those wave patterns come into being, or what what what's the characteristic of the reactions that would cause them to create uh, an ordered form like a wave? Right, right. In a in a in a in a system that was in disorder or disequilibrium. Yeah, like the, to be in a have a state of flux, a reaction is the first prerequisite. But then you need other things, like you need not one but more than one reaction, and they have to intersect. They have to interact. Right. And then there has to be looping reactions. In this case, like I was saying about the cerium, where it goes from one state to another and back again, so mm -hmm. it creates a loop. Mm -hmm. So that's very important. If you don't have that loop, you can't produce waves. Right. Uh, so you can make these sort of basic rules, uh, at least in, with the reaction system, for example. Um, and so what I did is say, okay, we see this going on here in chemistry, what what if we make this postulate and bring it into physics and say, suppose that there's an ether filling all space, sort of an ancient idea, right. and uh, that it's uh, actually an alchemic ether, it's reacting. Uh, we can write now the equations. Well, I came up with a set of five equations to describe this. And out of this, you get all of physical reality, in effect. I, I don't want to overstate my case. Okay, well let me let me ask you just a general question then for people who are who are unfamiliar perhaps. Um, the idea of the ether, um, maybe you can give us a just sort of a general idea of what that is. I know that uh, certainly uh, as you say in sort of the, in, in many of the ancient uh, um, civilization, civilizations, certainly the Greek and, and even in our own up uh, in the early 1900s, certainly people like uh, Nikola Tesla and uh, Wilhelm Reich and those uh, sorts of people were, were uh, believed that the ether was real. But um, what, what, what is it that we're really talking about here? Uh, it's something that uh, sort of like the force in Star Wars, you might say. Okay. Close analogy. Uh, it, it's something that we're all made out of, but we don't know it's there because there's no way to directly interact with it. Okay. So if you think of an analogy of the ocean and the waves in the ocean, mm -hmm. uh, matter and energy are waves, they're equivalent to waves in the ocean. And so we as waves made out of matter and energy, uh, we can sense other objects which are also waves because our waves collide with the other objects' waves and we know it's there. All right, right. Uh, but go one level down, see, we can't go to the level of what is it, what is it that's forming the waves. Uh, we don't, even our, even physicists' tools like particle beams uh, for their particle experiments, basically are waves colliding with other waves. Right. So we have really no frame of reference other than the wave versus wave Yeah, there's wave no way thing. to directly prove through direct observation the mm. existence of ether or etherons, the particles that form the ether. Okay. Uh, you, you can only infer it. You can do experiments which would only occur that way if there was an ether. Okay, okay. Uh, for example, uh, studying the speed of light. For example, uh, there have been uh, tests that challenged actually Einstein's theory that the speed of light is constant. 
Right. There have been many stories, I think, over the last few years that talk about uh, uh, the changing and manipulative change the speed of light. I think I've read both... Uh, I don't think I've read about making it go faster, but I certainly have read about uh, uh, experiments that have slowed it down. Yeah. And also, uh, there have been experiments that show just in uh, nature normally uh, that light travels uh, at a different speed depending on the direction you observe. Uh-huh. Now, it's just, this must be tied in then to uh, the so-called redshift and the Doppler effect, that sort of idea? Uh, no, this was actually done in a laboratory. It's this silver tooth experiment. Ah, okay, okay. And uh, he was able to show with a laser interferometer a uh, shift of fringes depending on the direction he aimed his, uh, his beams. And he was able to, from that, calculate the speed at which we we're moving through the ether. And it matched uh, very closely with what they found with the... Uh, 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 satellite experiments on the cosmic background radiation because they found the cosmic background radiation. This is a, the microwave background that they claim originated from the Big Bang. Right, this underlying uh, radiation, right. That it's uh, hotter in the direction of the Leo constellation and cooler in the direction of the Aquarius constellation. Hmm. And the, the amount uh, from that you can calculate the speed which we're moving relative to that radiation field. And it comes out close to what Silvertooth found. I see. Now, that, 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 that kind of goes, wouldn't that kind of contradict the special and general relativity ideas? Well, special, yeah. Special relativity then falls on its face. Right. That's a direct disproof. Uh, all it takes is one experiment like that, and you have to toss the theory out. But what right. the problem is that special relativity has become so habitually ingrained and to the point where physicists will fight you tooth and nail uh, to keep it there. Right. Uh, in other words, they want to ignore the data. Uh, and it's sort of like physics has turned into a system of religious belief. Boy, isn't that Unfortunate, but... In that aspect, we are further behind today than we were 100 years ago. I hate to say that. And perhaps, uh, and perhaps further behind than we may have been a lot longer than that, huh? Yeah. Uh, so let's, um, let's do I, I think we'll actually come back uh, and talk a little bit later about um, uh, what you just touched on, sort of this idea of uh, science becoming religion and, and uh, the sort of high priests of science um, uh, making out-of-hand uh, decisions about uh, what, uh, what's legitimate and what's not and what deserves to be published and what's not, because I know that's an issue as well that we need to talk about because it's very relevant today and something, in fact, that, uh, that Dr. Laviolette is uh, embroiled in the middle of right now. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but first let's take a break. Okay, Paul, um, you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. This is Mike Hagan, and my guest is astrophysicist Dr. Paul Laviolette. We'll be back in a few minutes. Thanks for listening. Stick around. Okay, uh, let's play a little piece of music here, and we'll be back with Dr. Paul Laviolette in just a moment. This is Hot House Flowers with The Older We Get. And uh, don't forget, give me a call here at the station, 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676, and pledge your support to KOPN and Radio Orbit. Thanks. Back in a minute with Dr. Paul Laviolette.
as a child touching him We think that it's so That life, love, and everything Is easy to know The only can reach us Their ways are not ours Though they followed our futures Our freedom they bore The older we get The farther we see The more we mean to each other Oh, 
When you started to come up with these ideas of your own and you developed subquantum kinetics, which maybe you can touch on a little bit that uh, a little bit now, um, that led you in a little bit of a different direction. Is that right? Right. Um, yeah, I called the theory subquantum kinetics, and my effort was to get it published in refereed journals, which it finally was in 1985. And then the subsequent papers were exploring astronomical, cosmological aspects. Uh, which, uh, one paper was published in 1986, a year later, in the Astrophysical Journal, which is the uh, lead journal in astrophysics. Certainly. Same one that Hubble published his results in. Right, right. And in that, uh, I disproved the Big Bang Theory, uh, showing that uh, data... Observational data uh, actually supports a stationary universe with uh, tired light behavior, mm -hmm. where light loses energy, uh, as opposed to a Big Bang type of universe. That uh, that was kind of for many years a thorn in the side of Big Bang theorists. And this goes back. They couldn't disprove the conclusions. They were so well, I guess, uh, supported by the data. Right. Uh, been going on 19, 20 years now, so. Uh, well, what happened more recently, <clears throat> they spent millions of dollars to try to disprove my paper with uh, programs as the uh, Supernova uh, Project, where they've been studying supernovas. Mm -hmm. All this you hear in the news about accelerating universe and right, so on. Right, right. Uh, and there was another paper uh, on the Tolman. It's called the Tolman's Test where they cited my paper and said their results disproved it. Well, uh, I addressed both of those in my uh, most recent edition of my book where I took their data, and it turns out rather than disproving the tired light theory, <laughs> it actually supports it and disproves the Big Bang. Right. It all has to do with uh, who is <laughs> what view the researchers have. Right, you know, right. The same data can... Mean I think that they were actually... Um, uh, distorting the, the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, as for the supernova study, it's uh, flawed with uh, what's called selection effects. The problem is that supernova, very far away, you all, you tend to see the very bright ones because the dim ones you don't see very well, and it's the bright ones that uh, are the ones that tend to last longer. And so from that, they've mistakenly concluded that uh, there's a time dilation. Uh -huh. So this is an example. So anyway, uh, I think that the conclusions of my original study still hold. But anyway, uh, this was my approach. I wanted to get the theory published in referee journals uh, sort of nailed down. And uh, it was uh, around, the, when was it, in the 70s, when uh, I noticed the connection with uh, ancient myths. It, it began when I was uh, telling a roommate of my girlfriend at that time uh, about my theory, and she happened to say, gee, that sounds a lot like the tarot. Ah. So I started studying the tarot. I took a course in it, and uh, as I listened to the uh, lecturer tell about the... Now, let me explain for tar if people don't know. The tarot is... Uh, 
ancient system of symbols that was brought by the gypsies from Egypt in a form of a uh, deck of cards used in fortune telling. And the first 22 cards, they're picture cards, uh, that are supposed to convey certain metaphysical principles. Okay. Uh, very much like uh, systems theory. You know, it's, you're talking about natural principles, principles of nature. Okay, right. And um, what I found was that the first 10, uh, our kind of first 11, were in effect explaining my physics theory hmm. in the right order. In other words, if you had picked uh, principles to lay down, what, are, what do you need first to create particles of matter right. out of an ether, that's, uh, an ether that's in a state of flux, okay. an open system type of ether? Um, there would be a certain order in which you'd present your concepts, and they were exactly in the right order. Huh. And, of course, the guy that was lecturing didn't, didn't realize that he was pretty much explaining his <laughs> physics. Uh, and it, what was interesting was that the tarot, the esoteric uh, uh, tradition associated with it, is that the first 11 cards are supposed to be describing the creation of the physical universe. Okay. So uh, this I found very interesting and... Uh, Give me an example of something that stuck out at you. Obviously, something struck you and said, "Hey, that that reminds me of my of my uh, subquantum kinetics ideas." Okay. Uh, well, the first uh, number card one, for example, is representing flux. You have the the magus, and he's got his hand raised, and energy is coming down to the table. The table, it's the altar. It uh, symbolizes the physical world. Now, these are I'm not making this up. This is what they say it represents. Right, right, and I, I am I am familiar with uh, at least at a at a basic level with some of this stuff. So so I, I'm and I'm, I'm on the you. altar is a cup or a chalice, uh, a uh, coin, and a sword. And uh, again, the tarot tradition teaches that these are associated with life, like the cup is life, uh, the coins is symbols, and the sword is um, earth or material okay and uh, this uh, fits beautifully because those are the three evolution vectors or what I call evolution vectors okay in physical existence okay if you look at all the physical existence and you classify all the systems that we have here uh, one is the most basic is the evolution of material systems from the atom, subatomic particle, on up to galaxies. Right. And then out of that is sort of given birth a, a new vector, which is the life evolution vector, mm -hmm. which is born at the molecular level and eventually forms cells and then multicellular organisms. And then if you want to extend that, societies and global civilization. Right, right. right. And then from there is given birth another at the point of the human or conscious being mm -hmm. uh, where uh, for the first time now thoughts can develop symbols and form symbol systems and higher level systems Wow! so here they were taking things that uh, now even though I had developed independently these evolution vector ideas von Bertalanthe the father of general systems theory had similar division of systems uh, into these three areas. 
and you find them also in the ancient uh, uh, symbol system of Tarot. Well, you know, and, and, and the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of the Trinity. Uh-huh. That, uh, well, uh, that's slightly... I think that's more uh, this idea of the union concept, okay. uh, uh, where you have um, card one, two, and three. Uh, card two is the duality, the division of the flux or appearance of dualities. Right. And then uh, in card three, they talk about the unions, uh, like a union of opposites. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the opposites which were created before in card two. Right. right. Yeah. That, see, it has a certain logical sequence. Right. Right. I'm with sequence. you. Okay. I understand. And, Very uh, interesting. And finally, in the end, you have a wave pattern formed. In fact, they symbolize it in the tarot with the wheel of fortune, where hmm. the beans are rotating around a wheel. So first, you have the one being up and the other down, and then it reverses. It's sort of like in the yin and yang, where they talk about yin and yang. Right. Uh, they also talk about the oscillation of polarity there, too. Sure, sure. And uh, so if you plot this out, they're describing the creation of a wave in a non-equilibrium reaction system. This is a, an basically conveying an ancient physics uh, through symbols. Right. In fact, uh, it's the tarot It's tied in with the ancient Egyptian creation myths. And alchemy can be traced back to Egypt. In fact, alchemy comes from the word alchemet, which is uh, meaning the uh, science of Egypt. Chemistry yeah, I think. Egypt. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think chem, the the the, the root chem, K H E M, was the original name of that land. Actually, I think so. Uh huh. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So okay. So so. So through the, so so the tarot was your sort of sir, your your sort of first, first peek behind that veil, and then that took me to astrology, and in parallel I was also discovering that ancient creation myths encoded this, things like uh, the the Babylonian or Sumerian myths, that sort of stuff. Or how far back are we talking? Well, here? the first one that <clears throat> was when I had gone to uh, Portland State University mm-hmm. to get my PhD. Right. I was going to study systems theory. Okay. This was the only university in the United States that gave a PhD in systems theory. Mm-hmm. Actually, I was going originally to develop my physics theory there. And uh, while there, I was studying one of the books they had given us for one of the reading assignments. Uh, the theorist had uh, made a comparison to the ancient Babylonian creation myth about some of the concepts there. Uh, it looked like systems concepts and that's when I realized my gosh it's more than what he's seeing there he doesn't see the whole thing Mm -hmm. and I saw it was actually explaining this uh, science of physical creation so we have this idea of mythology almost used as a metaphor right where in this case the gods it's sort of like a little story and the gods in the story are the principles these uh, principles that are operating in the universe okay and as the story talks about what happens where the gods do this and that and they fight battles, they are describing the processes that go on in the physical universe to create, finally, in the end, the, the wave pattern, the primordial wave, which is the proton, in, as an example. Right, so these battles may be representing interactions between different fields, etc. 
not fields, but um, see, because the field is something emerges later. It's more of a physical, visible phenomenon, whereas here you're at a subquantum level. Okay. Uh, where you have, if you imagine this etheric sea has not just one, but many different types of etherons, where you can label them with letters. Mm -hmm. And they're reacting, just like chemical reactions might be. Um, and uh, so the, uh, through these reactions, you uh, generate variations. Of the of etherons, let's say X and Y, mm -hmm. all these different types of etherons. Uh, so X and Y would, uh, let's say, one place X would be high and Y would be low. So that's that you call like a fluctuation, and would be equivalent to like what they talk about zero point energy fluctuations in space. Mm -hmm. uh, you've heard of this term? Yes. Okay, so this is the equivalent in the ether theory. You, you have these oscillations of the concentrations. And uh, eventually this, uh, if the concentration is big enough, in the myths they, they describe this like a battle being fought, where right. the concentration of, let's say, Y going up uh, would be like the birth of the warrior king who has mm -hmm. not yet conquered, but he's trying to be suppressed by the destroyer god who is symbolizing entropy and really the destroyer is really the other competing fluctuations that are also trying to emerge but they are battling each other right and as these battles go on then they flux back and forth etc and the secret and you find that the this is repeated in all these myths that the way that the uh, victor makes it is that he is keeps his uh rebellion secret he's let's say born in a secret place like for example Oris he's born in the swamps and kept hidden from Set which is the god in power who is the evil god mm -hmm. um, until he grows so powerful that Set can no longer defeat him and the tarot it shows this pageant where now the this fluctuation that he's emerged out of the ether is symbolized as a king a, a warrior king who is invincible now. Uh, so the fluctuation has now grown large enough that entropy can't destroy it. And eventually it turns into this wave. So all of these uh, myths are metaphorically coding and coding something very simple, which is the creation of a single particle of matter. All right. And if you can create one particle of matter, you can create more. Right. So that's, so that's the, ad infinitum. Right, and so that's the, the basic process is, is how do you create one? And a more metaphor that they often use is the separation of earth and sky. Mm. You see this in a lot of myths. Right, you see that. Where Geb and Newt separate. Sure, you see in the uh, Christian the mythology. Bible, Genesis, in the Mes Mesopotamian myth, uh, where An and Ki separate. Um, you see it all over the world. You know, I was I was, I, I was a big fan of uh, Joseph Campbell, um, and still am. And and although he uh, may not have been had the scientific background to make the connections that you've been able to make and develop the actual scientific theory upon it. He was fascinated uh, by the fact that so many of these diverse cultures from tens of thousands.
thousands of miles apart from one another, seemingly isolated in certain situations, all did seem to have uh, very similar creation stories. So what, is, what does that tell us, Paul? Well, what it's led me to conclude is that <clears throat> at some time in the past, uh, there was a civilization that had this knowledge <clears throat> and felt <clears throat> excuse me, it was very important to communicate this to the future. <clears throat> And so it was encoded in many different creation myths, uh, so that it could be orally transmitted. So there was a reason why they would encode it like this for people who would say, "Why would why why would they why would they do it under the radar as, like this?" As you uh, unravel this, because now what we're talking about, we're talking about the discovery of a vast storehouse of knowledge that mm -hmm. has been there all along for us to find and we hadn't previously seen it. And it's sort of like once you pick up the thread at the right place, you mm -hmm. begin to see that it's there. Right. You follow it, and it leads you into a lot of avenues of mm -hmm. discovery. Mm -hmm. And one is this idea that there was a uh, major cataclysm at the end of the Ice Age. <clears throat> now, uh, I, of course, myself had heard all these stories about the burning of the earth, Noah's flood, and I didn't know whether to believe them myself. Right. It was only as, as, as I was going through this research that I discovered, in fact, that there was an encoding of a major cataclysm in these lores that made me start to think maybe there's something to this. And the, the thing is that they did it in such a sophisticated way uh, that rivals our own method of uh, using cryptographic techniques to communicate to extraterrestrial civilizations. Uh, that that kind of really woke me up, and it, it was such a, an awakening for me uh, that I actually changed the topic of my dissertation from studying, uh, trying to develop the physics theory to um, ex examining whether this event had actually taken place. Right. Uh, and so that later became my, my thesis topic, uh, where I found evidence for a, a cataclysm that had occurred. Okay. Um, and, and, and this would be um, something similar to maybe something like Velikovsky would have been talking about, or... or mm -hmm. Or, uh, it's a well, it's actually nobody had proposed this before, uh, except um, maybe a few papers had talked about the idea of uh, gamma ray bursts from galactic centers as a possible threat, but one that might happen every 15 or 100 million oh, years. Okay, yeah. My, my point was, I, I, Velikovsky certainly hadn't hadn't come up with any of the. Uh, solutions or answers to the question, but he was certainly interested in catastrophism and these and what seemed to be uh, right. uh, well, recurring catastrophes. I, I had actually read Velikovsky's book uh, before I had come up with a theory, and which I found very interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has assembled a lot of interesting uh, stories and evidence. However, I think he was uh, not correct in the cause. Uh, which, in his case, he was talking about Venus uh, right, coming right. into the solar system. Right, the problem is that out of all the planets in the solar system, Venus has the most circular orbit of any. So if Venus was a comet, 
why does it have such a circular orbit? And he never explains that. And mm-hmm. Actually, it's pretty much physically impossible for Venus to have done all these antics uh, just a couple thousand years ago and now be in a perfectly circular orbit. Right, right, right. Um, okay. And there's other problems. Actually, in my book, uh, Earth Under Fire, uh, in the new edition which is coming out, I will take uh, Velikovsky's, that part of Velikovsky's theory about Venus and show what was really going on, okay. why he thought it was a comet. Was All right, well, good. It had well, a tail on it. Well, well, I tell you what, that's a good time, actually, to mention... Uh, your books and the website. So let me do that real fast. For those interested, uh, Dr. LaViolette's books and lots of other real interesting information are available at uh, his website. That uh, address is www.etheric.com. That's E-T-H-E-R-I-C.com, etheric.com. And um, uh, for those of you listening right now, uh, it might even be worth your while to log on and uh, go uh, snoop around etheric.com a little bit because it's a real neat website. And although uh, Dr. LaViolette uh, has some pretty sophisticated ideas and sophisticated theories, um, the way he walks uh, walks you through it on the website is really neat, and it's actually sort of a little adventure, and uh, you can learn a whole lot along the way. So, uh, so I advise everyone and... Uh, um, hope that you'll go over there to etheric.com and check that out. And while you're there, um, all of uh, Dr. LaViolette's uh, publications and books are there as well, and uh, just a, a whole whole lot of different information. So and there's, <clears throat> there's an 800 number given there, too. Uh, it's 1-800-715-9993. But anyway, um, what were we talking about? Well, we're talking about this... Uh, these mythologies and um, and and the cataclysm that happened, oh, yeah. what you thought happened, probably around the last ice age or so. Yeah, and relating to the myths, why they would encode them. Uh, so, uh, if there was, let's say, a civilization that was able to teach this at one time, let's just suppose, mm-hmm. um, and they met with a cataclysm where it reduced humanity to living in caves to escape from the elements or just surviving best they could uh, for uh, living off of uh, killing animals or whatever. Right, so uh, just back, back to, to the Stone state. Age. Right. Yeah, uh, science could no longer have uh, flourished as it once did. Uh, science is sort of like a system. You have to think of this in systems terms. Okay. Look at our present society. Uh, the reason we have scientists and laboratories and universities is because we're kind of blessed with uh, wealth at this time of uh, humanity's existence. Right. We have the benefit of all our needs being taken care of, and everything's cool. So we have time to uh, we have time to to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And to communicate ideas over time. Uh, you don't have that when people are running around in <laughs> groups uh, shooting animals. Right, trying, trying to, to live. Trying to take what you got and trying to survive the next day, sure. Yeah. And so the, the idea they had was, well, well, let's encode this science and this knowledge about this cataclysm in the form of myths and legends and have them told around the fire sort of as entertaining stories to be handed down through generations. And in some cases, they actually encoded them into their rituals, their, their sacred uh, rituals. Uh, because these, these stories were considered probably the most important things of the human race was supposed to communicate. Mm-hmm. Because it was something that 
would determine the future survival of humanity. Right, literally of the species, right? And so they they wanted to be redundant, so they they had not just one culture but many cultures uh, mm -hmm. having their own stories that were being conveyed. And you find that the uh, the, the concepts are, are, are strikingly preserved, even though they evolved in different cultures. You see different variations, like in some, for example, the Sumerian story just has a small sketch of the physics of creation, whereas the Egyptian uh, stories uh, go in great detail. Right, a huge, elaborate, uh, deep, deeply detailed story. Uh, and and in the, uh, for example, the Atlantis creation myth. Ah, what's up with that? The well, Atlantis um, story is that uh, is that is that a is that a, a creation story as well? Yes, it is. Uh, now the Atlantis myth, there's two f phases to it. The, the phase that's in Critias talks about the creation of Atlantis. Right, right. And the other part is in Timaeus. It talks about the flood. Now the creation myth um, is actually encoding the same science of creation that's in the Egyptian myths and these other myths. And that would be on the Critias uh, part of it, right? The Critias, right. In this case, it's Poseidon that is the god who uh, initiates the splitting of, in this case, instead of earth and sky, it's uh, water and earth. Okay, okay. And he forms Atlantis, which is this island that has a mound in the center of earth, and then a moat of water is a ring, and then a ring of land, and so on. Right, it's like concentric Hold rings right. or something, I remember. Right. Just like these waves we've been ah, talking about. Ah, I get it, all right, all right. So this and is a particle or something they're describing. So, right, so what they're showing is a subatomic particle, a proton. Ah, ah. And, and uh, you see how your conceptions completely cloud your understanding of the myth. Here, people are running around... Looking for Looking Atlantis. Looking for a physical place. Atlantis, huge. And what they should be doing is getting their electron microscopes out. <laughs> <laughs> now, and, not, and realizing that this was not a, a physical land or a kingdom, that this is a metaphor. So... They're making the, the people that are looking for Atlantis physically, and I'm, I'm not saying there's not an ancient civilization that there oh, that there, there right, I mean, right. There probably right. They could be mutually exclusive. They could be both at the same time, right? Now, I, mean, I believe like you that. had coastal civilizations that are underwater right. today because the sea level has risen 300 feet. Certainly, have you have you seen that uh, Yanaguni uh, area underneath, off the coast of uh, Japan, where they found that incredible? Uh, a huge megalithic structure underwater there. I'll have to send that to you I if you haven't I, seen it. It's I astounding. Heard about that. Is yeah. that something recent or? Well, it's been. I'd say probably going on five or six years now. Yeah, yeah. I think I've heard about that. Yeah. Right. In any case, okay. So, you find it here. You, something you don't find in any of the other myths, in that they've actually made a um, a diagram of the darn thing. Huh. And encoded coded it even to the. Specifications of how wide is each moat and uh, ring. I mean, Plato gives uh, some considerable detail. Right, if I remember right, in Plato's writings, he actually talks about the width of these rings or whatever, or the or the the the, uh, right. the distance from the ring to the water, that sort of thing. Now, I've gotten in arguments with Atlantis. Uh, uh, what are you calling enthusiasts? <laughs> okay, guys uh, that are guys that are physically looking who for. Who were angry at me? This was at a. Uh, conference, a symposium on Atlantis and ancient catastrophes. Mm -hmm. 
and they were angry the fact that I would suggest that this is metaphorical. And I pointed out to them, well, don't blame me, blame Plato, because he's the <laughs> one that said it, says that this is not to be taken literally. Right, shoot the and message. he gives an example. He says, look, for example, the myth of Thedon, <clears throat> which, <clears throat> which the Greeks uh, talked about, um, the burning of the earth. It's the story of the burning of the earth. Do me, do me a favor. Refresh us real fast. I'm not real familiar with that story. The story of heaven? Yeah. And the sun chariot? Well, this is where uh, the son of the uh, sun god, who was just a mortal boy, uh, wanted to uh, run his father's horses, which uh, the sun was pulled across the sky. Okay, okay. Uh, a chariot. And so his his um, classmates didn't believe that he was the son, and they said, "Well, prove it to us." So he said, "Okay, you know." And so his father granted him this wish. Uh, okay, I'll let you do it. He didn't want to, but he finally gave in to his son. So, well, the boy was very inept, as it turned out, and um, his horses sensed that that it wasn't uh, the sun god there; it was the the sun and they could do what they wanted, so they got off the course. And uh, he started going out where the constellations are, and when the chariot came near Scorpio, the horses got frightened by the stinger of Scorpio, which is a very important point of the myth, because it's uh, the Scorpio constellation is in the general area of the galactic center. Okay, and that's an indicator of some sort, I'm, I'm guessing, so... Yeah, and it's actually the galactic center which does the stinging in this case uh, mm -hmm. because it sends out explosively cosmic rays that bring about these disasters. Uh, but it's at that point the horses are frightened and uh, they they go into a stampede and uh, bringing the, the sun very close to the earth and it's scorching and the surface and setting it aflame oh. and so on. Finally, Feathern is tossed in the sea burning. And... Uh, Okay. And the sun is there, surrounded in smoke for days and days, and there's darkness and all all sorts of... All manner of nastiness, right. So uh, Plato is saying that uh, this, uh, on the surface, looks like just a story, a retaining story, but he says actually it's sim symbolic of things that actually occurred on Earth um, that are dealing with uh, astronomical events and uh, so he's pretty much telling you right there uh, right. but he doesn't go in to say what it is to decipher the symbolism of Atlantis or what is this what it is behind this uh, story of heaven uh, and uh, you can say because he Plato was an initiate mm -hmm. and they were barred from explaining secrets right this knowledge was held pretty closely and it was it was uh, uh, it was transmitted to new initiates through secret schools and this sort of thing and it was uh, right. pr pretty pretty tightly held right yes and uh, there was reason for that I mean they could sit, tell the myths because they wanted those myths out there and they could say yes there is a very important significance metaphorical significance right but they didn't want to say what it is because well, one it could probably frighten people uh, second if uh, somebody knew what it said, some philosopher would come along and say, well, I disagree with that theory. I think the universe is this way. And pretty soon, it would completely erase the, the prior knowledge. Mm -hmm. So by keeping it secret and protecting it, that's how it was able to preserve 
itself unchanged. And 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 doesn't the doesn't the knowledge of the information that's being uh, transmitted through these myths, if you can decode it, if you can find out some of these secrets, doesn't that lead to, uh, wouldn't it, or is it possible that that would lead to much greater technologies and much greater uh, ideas of, of, of how to make things work in the physical? I mean, in other, are there practical yes. applications that people would want to keep secret too? Well, it, as it turns out, for example, this ancient physics leads to an understanding of control of gravity. Okay. Uh, the development of uh, gravity propulsion drives, what we observe a UFO is using. Uh, this may sound real hokey for you just to hear me saying this, uh, but I can tell you that there are experiments which, you know, you can go read the papers on the Internet, uh, like Bob Klinoff's work and others. Uh, it's stuff that sounds like science fiction uh, if you really understand what it is. But it's these are these are realities. Right. We're living in a very fast-paced period now. Right, and there are things changing very quickly, and there are a lot of things that are happening that people have no idea about. You know, the this idea of uh, uh, of anti-gravity or zero-gravity propulsion and stuff. Uh, certainly, uh, there, there is a basis. Uh, established basis in science. We know that uh, in the early 1900s, people like Schauberger and Tesla and all these guys were messing with, with the relationship between electri uh, electricity and, uh, and gravity. Yeah, and you, you hit it. It's, apparently, there's a connection between electricity and gravity, between electric field and gravitational field. Right, which makes perfect sense intuitively. In other words, you know, you have this three-way thing between ele electricity, magnetism, and gravity, and it seems crazy to think that, okay, electricity and magnetism are related. Magnetism and uh, gravity are, but but electricity and, and gravity aren't, you know. Mm -hmm. In any case, okay. Uh, uh, you see, that's something that general relativity, which is our current theory of gravity, uh, the established view of gravity, doesn't make any connection right. between so electricity and gravity. In fact, Einstein was puzzled this till his death. He was trying to form a unification to bring electrostatics in somehow and to tie it in with gravity. And the best unified theories would say, oh, we need particle energies or, you know, accelerate particles to trillions of electron volts, more, more than that, actually, quadrillions. And up there somewhere at that very high energy, we might find that the two fields are unified. <laughs> well, the truth is that they've done experiments to show gravitational effects of electric fields at just voltages of 100,000 volts or right, so. Right, right. And... Uh, Actually, subquantum kinetics predicts this connection between electricity and gravity. Uh -huh. And now, subquantum kinetics is sort of a mirroring of this ancient science. Uh, even though I didn't base it on the ancient science, I discovered the connection later. Right, right. And and I realized that, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to uh, uh, to talk about your. Uh, your work in subquantum kinetics before we talked about the connection to the ancients and the mythology and all this stuff because I want people to be very clear uh, that uh, uh, the original basis for all of these ideas and theories and proofs uh, were, were based um, right there in the uh, in the institutionalized mainstream. So, Yeah, I, 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 I've been very careful uh, in developing this uh, because... You know, as, as soon as you start bringing, saying, oh, okay, your idea is based on some speculation, uh, 
ancient uh, religions or philosophies, um, nobody's going to believe what you, you say. Right, uh, right. They discount it right out of hand. Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of theories like that that are really based on a belief system. Mm-hmm. And what's been through my life is the interest to understand reality <laughs> and uh, try to see what's going on and not relate it to necessarily what other people have written at first, you know. I just try to see uh, based on <clears throat> how can we plug this into the existing structure of science. Right. And uh, system theory is part of the existing structure of science. Right. It's uh, a very interdisciplinary structure, which is very good uh, to build on. And that's where I've built uh, this edifice of subquantum kinetics. All right, this is Mike here. Uh, You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. We'll be back in just a minute to continue this interview with Dr. Paul LaViolette, and I hope you're enjoying it. In the meantime, the number here at the station is area code 573-874-5676 if you're interested in pledging a little bit of your hard-earned money to KOPN and to Radio Orbit. Uh, Our pledge drive is starting on officially on Monday morning, but uh, I thought uh, because I had the phones free the night, I'd see if I could drum up any business for uh, uh, for my show in the station. So if you're interested in that, uh, all donations would be accepted and greatly appreciated. And uh, the number again is 573-874-5676. In the meantime, this is Radiohead on uh, Radio Orbit, and we'll be back again with the uh, conclusion of my interview with Dr. Paul LaViolette in just a moment.
Radiohead, Black Star from the Benz on Radio Orbit. This is KOPN 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio, it's community radio, and it's your imagination station, KOPN. And this is Mike Hagan. Uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit, and we're right in the middle of an interview I did not long ago with Dr. Paul Laviolette. We're going to get right back to that right now. Okay. Well, hey, um, let's let's get back to the, uh, uh, the the idea of catastrophism and this idea that there may be a recurring uh, uh, a recurring sort of nightmare that the ancients may have been trying to tell us about or warn us about. Or um, and uh, you mentioned earlier some ideas of galactic core outbursts. I have a feeling that that's yeah. probably related to this. Let's um, maybe you could go a little bit deeper into that. Well, uh, it's sort of like we live on the edge of a, a volcano that every so many thousands of years erupts. In this case, you see a tendency to erupt with major eruptions every oh, 13,000 years or so, okay. plus or minus 3,000. Uh, then you have some minor eruptions, smaller outbursts. Uh, but the major eruptions are big enough that they can cause climatic changes. And if you look at the record of the past, the Ice Age record, you never had an interglacial like we have that lasts much longer than what we have now, which is 11,000 years. Uh, and this, the reason is because of these outbursts and the changes of climate, according to what I had proposed back in the 80s, is due to these follies of cosmic rays that come to us from the galactic center. Now, this is not just all hand-waving. Uh, I had created tests to check the hypothesis, and they all came out positive in favor of it. And then I published predictions, and now I have something like 13 or 14 predictions that were previously published, which have now been verified. Yeah, some of which are real, uh, uh, r- really s- significant. And I would, I would advise, again, uh, people who are interested in this uh, to go to uh, etheric.com, www.etheric.com, and you can, uh, you can actually go to... Dr. Laviolette's website there, and he has a page where uh, where these uh, predictions and verifications of them uh, are posted. Real interesting stuff. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I worked on this for my PhD. Uh, it it uh, so blew me away when I discovered God. that this thing had apparently really happened. Now, how do we know about the recurring? You say you said that, that these in-between time periods never last more than 11, 12,000 years or so. How, do we see that in the, in the geologic record, or how do we, how do we know uh, these, these well, times? The best frames? record is the ice core record. Ah, okay. So and they, they've done a detailed climatic uh, profile going back uh, 250,000 years, but then going further back is the sedimentary record, like I think what you were talking about. Uh, which is a little rougher, but you, you can go back uh, like three million years. The, the present ice epoch we have is between two and three million years long. Okay. And it's been oscillating into ice ages within that period. Wow. And I, I believe the reason we're in an ice epoch is because see, you need not only the cosmic rays. See, there's two factors here. It's the cosmic ray volleys that come to us from 23,000 light years away from the galactic center. The galactic center being in the vicinity of the Scorpio Sagittarius Sagittarius. constellation. Right. right. Uh, 
but you also need a lot of dust in the environment of the sun to get pushed into the solar system, and that's what causes the climatic changes. Hmm. And uh, if, if you look around, just seeing what other astronomers have written, you find, that, lo and behold, uh, there was a supernova explosion that went off a few million years ago. And we are now uh, engulfed in the shell of that supernova explosion. It's called the North Polar Spur. Mm -hmm. And so not only there's dust, but also uh, masses, cometary bodies, that are debris left over from that explosion sure. that has created sort of a debris field. Sure, all manner through. of things, I'm sure. And uh, this is the source of the long-period comets. These are comets that come in and go out. And astronomers previously, not realizing that we're in this debris field, they were postulating a sphere of comets around the solar system. Right, the idea of the Oort cloud, that the sort Oort of thing. The Oort cloud, right. right. Uh, and uh, that things would jostle them to come in every so often. Well, the other way to look at it is, well, maybe it's just because we are passing through a region that's full of these. It's not just around our solar system. It's right. a huge right. area of light years and light years of this stuff. It's sort of like in Star Wars when they were going through that belt of asteroids. You know, um, and I, I'm, I'm going to add something real fast here, and it's sort of a, uh, a cosmological perspective that I want to give to my listeners because uh, a lot of people don't realize or they don't perceive or don't think about the fact that just as the Earth is revolving around the Sun and the Moon is moving around the Earth and the planets move around the Sun, the Sun also moves around its center, which moves around another center, and it's all these wheels within wheels, and you have to realize that uh, the Earth and the solar system really have never been in the same place twice, and we're constantly moving through different areas of space and different parts of the galaxy and uh, so sure why wouldn't we go through areas of uh, you know greater or lesser concentration of things whatever they might be you know right <clears throat> so it just happens that we're in this uh, choked up area presently and okay. so when we are showered with cosmic rays they cause major problems whereas they wouldn't otherwise so what's the relationship between the dust particles and this sort of thing and the cosmic rays okay well the cosmic rays when they arrive it's i call these super waves okay now i was the first to propose this idea that you have huge volleys that are of galactic size nobody had ever proposed that idea before because uh the previous theories believed that the cosmic rays would be stopped by magnetic fields in the galaxy. And uh, later came evidence that, well, in fact, uh, particles do travel many tens of thousands of light years without being stopped. Right. This was after I had talked about long-range propagation. Dr. LaViolette, let me ask you a question for reference. We uh, On this program, I, I do a... I do a um a segment of the show every week that I call Space Weather, and I usually talk about the sun, what's happening on the sun, and if there's any, uh, you know, particular flare activity or CME activity and this sort of thing. Would, as as an analogy, would we be talking about sort of a similar thing, like a big giant sun in the middle of the uh, galaxy, and if it would sort of unleash a big giant flare, sort of like we think about, except just on a much grander scale? Is that a, a reasonable? Yeah. Well. Um Think about an object that well, it might be as big as the sun, or maybe twice the diameter of the sun. Okay. But having maybe two million solar masses, 
So the material that it's formed of would be equivalent to like a white dwarf type of star. Okay. Very, very dense material. And this is the idea that this would be in the center of the galaxy as opposed to, for example, the, the, uh, the commonly uh, talked about idea that there's a black hole there, for exactly. example. Exactly. Okay. And um, you, you see, it, with this ancient physics, it explains why you would not have black holes. Black holes don't exist in this cosmology. That, that's kind of a negative idea anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole idea of things being swallowed up and disappearing and... Um, and observationally, we really don't see that. I mean, I know there's lots of things emanating from the center of the galaxy, so that doesn't just, I mean, just for a guy like me who's not even a physicist, it just doesn't make sense to me. Black hole theory has been disproved over and over, and, and I, I have evidence for that both in Genesis of the Cosmos mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. in uh, Earth Under Fire. Right. For example, uh, the idea of black holes being the center of galaxies causing these explosive outbursts, the, the problem is they look at these quasar galaxies or cipher galaxies and uh, there's huge energy pouring out from the centers from the cores but there's no matter around the cores to get pulled in all the matter is being blown out huh. so the question is what fuels them if it was a black hole it needs fuel right and actually after actually looking at these things with a Hubble telescope some of the leading astronomers began to doubt the black hole theory and the problem, the thing that keeps them pushing the black hole model is they don't have anything else, huh. and it would mean that they'd have to finally come to grips that physics has problems. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I saw a story that just came out within the last couple of days. It said that they have found another black hole. Now they say there's two black holes, or at least a couple of uh, scientists say this now. Not, not, not as there one... Not, there's not one black hole in the center of the galaxy. Now they've solved the problem by saying there's two. So it's a binary black hole, I guess. Huh? Uh. <laughs> in any case, uh, there, there's so certainly stretching. if you look there, anyway, what right. you would see is it would, it would be so intense, so energetic, that you would not see any light at all. It would be black in that sense that huh. you wouldn't, it would almost be invisible to, to our eyes. Okay. What would be what you'd be seeing would be x-rays, gamma rays, which we can't really see. We'd just be bombarded with these things. Uh, particles, cosmic ray particles. In other words, the star would be so hot, it would be radiating not light, but x-rays, gamma rays, and particles. Okay. And anything that was near it would get pushed out. Right. And this is part of the uh, natural creation. There's no big bang in this ancient physics and in subquantum kinetics. Your creation is through particles uh, materializing in the ether. Spontaneously, basically, Spontaneously, right? Right. right? Out of, if you want to say in the context of standard physics, you say that the zero-point energy, these electric potential fluctuations that come up naturally in the vacuum, as the standard physicists would say, uh, eventually nucleate particles. And it's a very rare process. It's something, let's say, in your living room would take maybe a billion years or so for a particle to materialize okay. or I don't know if I, I might be off by a few orders of magnitude there. <laughs> right, 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 but I get the point. It's a rare it. phenomenon, you know, out of all these fluctuations that, that every cubic centimeter has, uh, you know, 10 to the 85th uh, fluctuations going on, let's say, a uh, very rare one would finally create a particle, sort of like uh, Zeus winning his war. 
mm-hmm. and creating his empire, that empire being the particle. Uh, but eventually, uh, enough over you wait trillions of years, and you know, these things get together. You have certain areas where the materialization process goes faster. Uh, you form galaxies, and at a later stage, the core of the galaxy, which it would be the one of the earliest stars formed in the galaxy, but it had just had time to grow, mm-hmm. is now. Uh, um, in a very, uh, see, you, you see, matter in effect creates more matter in this cosmology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it would make sense that the, it would make sense that at the center was the original. Yeah, I see. One, one. This gets a little more into the technical details. Uh, it, it's not something you say just in a, and how long we've been talking. Right, right, right. One hour. Or so. No, I know. I realize there's, it's it. A lot of times. There's a lot of ramifications to it, right. and, and part of this is that. We're dealing here with a nonlinear system for mm-hmm. the ether. It's sort of where the analogy is: think of a nuclear reactor, and normally when a nuclear reactor is operating uh, properly, it's at the critical threshold. Right. But uh, then, if you if you're not watching it and, and you're not watching what you're doing, you can go into an explosive state. Correct. Uh, that's called supercritical condition. Correct. Or if you put in your control rods and you poison the reactor, it goes into subcritical condition. Okay. Well, the ether operates that way. And out in space, away from the galaxies, where the gravity potential is, uh, if you think of a gravity well, okay, Mm -hmm. we're in a gravity well here being in the galaxy. But away from us, in between galaxies, uh, you would have subcritical conditions, and you'd have photons would lose energy. That's where you get the redshifting effect. Right, the, the, the whole tired light idea. Yeah. Now, I'm not making this up. This, right. this, these are rigorous uh, predictions that come out of those five equations I was telling you about. Right, and uh, I, and I, and I will, I will add that you know we, we've only got uh, a couple. We've got an hour and a half, maybe two hours uh, of this interview with Dr. Laviolette. So th- there, there is a tremendous amount of technical uh, detail and research that supports all of this work. And you uh, are more than welcome to go look at that. Uh, uh, it's very transparent. All the stuff is out there on the web. Um, you can see the great majority of it over at uh, um, uh, at Paul's uh, website at etheric.com. But it's not worth it to spend a whole lot of time uh, going into detail about uh, technical theories and this sort of thing because, first of all, most people won't understand it anyway, but uh, for those that would, I want them to take the time to go do it themselves. Uh, but in the meantime, we're gonna, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let you continue with it, and, uh, um, and we will reinforce the fact that this is all stuff that has been very thoroughly uh, researched and documented. So. Yeah. So I just wanted to make the, uh, the contrast that whereas out in intergalactic space you have this loss of energy going on inside the galaxy you have the opposite effect where uh, light waves or photons will increase their energy over time instead of the red shifting they'll blue shift blue shift means their frequency increases ah now this is uh, where we get into the so-called pioneer effect is that right 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 that's a key test which is verified my prediction right something that you were the first one to verify as a matter of fact many years ago predicted. Or right. predicted, right, 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 right. Uh, in fact, here's the story with the Pioneer Effect. Now, is your audience uh, familiar with what the Pioneer Effect is? Let's, let, let's do a quick description of that. 
Okay, so what, what they were finding is they were studying the Pioneer spacecraft and they were tracking it with the Maser signal. And uh, oh, around 1990, they, they, they were a little worried about the data. They noticed it was off course from where it should be. Uh, it was as if the signals coming back were higher frequency than they should be, mm -hmm. who shifted. And uh, this effect wouldn't go away, so they watched it over many years. So finally, in 1992, they launched a study. and uh, or they, I guess they announced it in 94. They launched a study, and by 1998, they published their results. And... Um, they were interpreting it as if there was a mysterious force pushing the spacecraft towards the sun. It was totally not predicted by any laws of physics. So it was, became an open field day. You had everybody and their uncle were coming out and presenting theories of what this could be. Right. They're on the Internet, on the uh, Internet archive. You have dozens and dozens of theories to try to describe this. Okay. Now, I predicted this effect. Uh, okay, back in 79, my physics theory was predicting this blue shifting effect, and I was able to come up with an amount, an actual amount that should be observed. And 1980, I called up JPL, the same place where they found the Pioneer effect later. In 1980, I talked with some people that were involved in the Maser signal tracking. Right because they were at that time interested in looking at the maser signals to look for gravity waves by seeing how the, the signals become Doppler shifted. So I told them, you know, uh, would you be interested to do an experiment to look for blue shifting of signals because my theory predicts this, and I told them about how much you'd expect. Okay. And the fellow I was talking to, his reaction was, well... We're having hard enough time getting funding for our own gravity uh, wave research. <laughs> but your idea sounds interesting, you know. So mm -hmm. it was left at that. They sent me some of their papers. Okay, so ten years later, they probably forgot about my call. I don't know. But they come to exactly the con this conclusion. <laughs> right, right. I didn't get cited at all, but it turns out I published in 1985, still well before the even suspected uh, that there was something going on. Right, right before they had even realized what they were looking for. And I described doing a spacecraft experiment with Maser signals, sending uh, out to Jupiter and back, and looking for this amount, uh, and I actually stated the amount. Right, because it's quantifiable. And it's there in print, hard print, no one can deny it. Right. And I came within uh, two standard deviations of what they found. Wow. Now, that's like... Uh, Hitting a target on Pluto with a bow and arrow. It I sure is. By comparison. It, it sure so is. So I, I call up uh, a fellow heading that project, and I told him about my prediction. I sent him a copy of my book. And could he send me a copy of his paper, which was about to come out in, I think, uh, one of the major journals? And this was 98, right? Right. Uh... He never sent me the paper, so I couldn't see his calculations. Mm -hmm. It was only from something I read in the uh, one of the uh, news uh, stories. And so I didn't follow it up because I didn't really 
know for sure, you know, what his rate was he was observing. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, I thought it was might be close. It wasn't until four years later when he came out with his second paper and there were more news stories that I realized, my God, I was right on. Wow. And he, <clears throat> he never uh, corresponded with me. He had my book. He, he could have cited my mm-hmm. prediction. He mm-hmm. didn't. Uh, so I immediately set to work and wrote up a paper about the confirmation. Now, we're talking about... I, I don't want to boast here, but I think this is probably as big as Einstein's uh, prediction of the bending of starlight. Yeah, it's a huge thing. I mean, I for mean, people who are familiar with, the, with, with these subject areas, it is a huge, huge thing. And I've been told by other colleagues of mine that this is Nobel Prize material. Uh, it means that if it's correct, we have to completely revise everything we've been doing in astronomy. Right. Because, for example, the amount of this effect, of this blue shifting, because you're, in effect, generating energy. If you take a look at the sun, for example, you add up all the photons in the sun, and you say they're generating energy at a certain rate. Mm-hmm. You get a sizable fraction of the sun's output being spontaneously generated energy. Hmm. It comes out to be around 10%, in okay. the case of the sun. But... For other planets, like the like Jupiter is putting out energy from its center, Saturn, the Earth, geothermal energy. Right. Um, it's able to predict all these. Yeah, and much of that stuff was unexplained in, in conventional uh, methodology. So. Brown dwarfs uh, and uh, the red dwarf stars. Turns out the red dwarf stars are entirely powered by genic energy, this spontaneously generated blue shifting energy, uh, according to the predictions. And uh, you can actually plot the brown dwarfs and uh, red dwarf stars, and they they end up on the same line with the planets, hmm. which would be showing that there is a common re- energy relation when you plot their mass against their luminosity. But that's getting a little technical. Right, right, right. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I've written the paper, and I've this gets into this. Uh, Internet archive problem. Well, and, and yeah, I think I think since we're there, I think now is a good time uh, to mention that. And and, and before we uh, get too deeply into it, I will mention another website that I'd like people to go take a look at, and that is www.archivefreedom.org. That's archive freedom. Org, and uh, there are a number of scientists uh, that Dr. Laviolette is working with um, on that website to try to uh, try to mediate some of the things that uh, we're going to be talking about here in just a minute. So, um, uh, so that's one to uh, to bookmark, and I'll mention that again in a few minutes here. So, yeah, um, well, <clears throat> I submitted this uh, to be posted because now let, let's um, let's. Uh, let me clarify something real fast. There, there's apparently a scientific archive, a physics archive, that is maintained by uh, Cornell University. I have no problem mentioning that, I think. Originally, it was Los Alamos, and okay. then the guy who developed it moved to Cornell, so he brought the archive computer programs and everything with him. Okay, and this is something that is uh, uh, very important these days. In, in, in other words, it, it's, it's a mode that many scientists and researchers are, are using to share information and to talk about new ideas and all these sorts of things. Is that correct? Right, because uh, the way things were done before and still are is you publish your findings in a technical journal and it can take anywhere from four or five months to four or five years sure. 
uh, in the case, for example, of my paper in Astrophysics Journal, uh, I first sent them the copy in 78 and was published in 85. So there you have seven years to wow. get one article published. Wow. And the more controversial or astounding the findings, huh. the more that physicists will have to change their belief system, the more difficult it is. Yeah, and you and wonder why... people never get their stuff published. Gosh, you wonder, and you wonder why we're stagnating the way we are. My exactly. Gosh. My yeah. gosh. Uh, if you want my opinion, the major problems of society are created by the physicists today. <laughs> if you want to find who is to blame, if you're looking around for where is the blame for the global warming, for what's going on, all our problems that we're facing, you better look at the physicists. They're the ones that are holding us back. Mm -hmm. Not just physicists, but just scientists in general. I I have to agree with that. I feel like uh, uh, I feel like we're in the middle of a sort of scientific dark age. Even though there's some tremendous work going on and, and incredible discoveries, including the things that you're uh, doing yourself, there is such uh, an overwhelming aura of um, well, just uh, it's suppression is the only word that I can think of. Is that is that uh, there's such a uh, an, an unwillingness to change, regardless of whether it will bring benefit to our planet or to the people that live here or whatever. It's just uh, it seems like we're just stuck in a rut, and and um, it's it's amazing because it's happening in many, like you say, many different areas of human endeavor. Now, physicists <coughs> have set up taboo areas that if you do any work in these certain territories, taboo territories, you're ostracized. Mm -hmm. For example, anti-gravity, uh, speculation about UFOs, crop circles, even Galactic ancient mythology. outbursts, perhaps, in ancient mythology? Yeah, I think, for example, the idea of a physicist like myself writing a book tying in ancient myths with modern science concepts sticks in the throat of some of these thought police of the physicist community. Right. Uh, they don't even want to see what what is written. Immediately they're thinking, oh, he bases theories on astrology or something like this. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they come up with all sorts of crazy ideas. Right, so rather than verify the, the information in the paper and make a judgment on a reasonable right. base, they it's just... It's all emotional. It's sort right. of like... Oh, you stepped on the wrong square, you know, huh, right. you're branded, you know. Right, and as soon as they see the It doesn't matter what you said, just because you went in that area, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I've been attacked by American Physical Society, by the top people, you know, uh, writing things. that They make up crazy stories, kind of like the negative ads you get uh, in the, the political campaigns right, right. where they make up baloney that's right. not true right and, be, and you know exactly what? the same thing right they're, they're, they were claiming I infiltrated the patent office I was part of some conspiracy to huh. bring open-minded people into the patent office oh my god if that's bad right but I was part of this plot huh. and then I get fired two weeks later <sighs> after after the, this was brought to the attention of my director yeah it was this kind of stuff that was going on. Well, it's a, unfortunately, that's an all-too-familiar story, um, like you say, if, uh, uh, for whatever reason. Um, and you can, you can talk about the, the reasons. You know, that's a whole other show. Why are they doing these sorts of things? But uh, certainly that's a, it's, a, it's unfortunately a common story with people who are doing incredible work and, and pushing the envelope and breaking paradigms and, uh, 
and and those people are and you know it's a historical uh, it, there are so many precedents historically we we talk about you know how advanced we are and forward thinking and all this sort of stuff yet the the sort of thing that you're experiencing here is no different than what Galileo went through or numerous and you know a myriad other uh, people over time who have had uh, uh, similar things happen to them. And over I'm not time, the only one to be blocked from posting his paper on this physics archive. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a group, and they, we have a, a links to their experiences. For example, includes even uh, a Nobel laureate who tried to help a fellow who's actually a Los Alamos scientist uh, upload his research to the archive. The fact that it was on cold fusion was a no-no. <laughs> I hear cold fusion. Uh, American Physical Society uh, cronies like uh, Robert Park, right. head of the publicity department, they right, continually right. castigate people who are doing cold fusion research as if they're doing voodoo physics or something. You know, uh, you may or may not be familiar, but there, there's a gentleman who's doing work at MIT on cold fusion, and I've been trying to get him to uh, do a show with me because I think that he's doing some incredible stuff. And you know what? They've got they've got this poor guy so beat up and so nervous and uh, uncomfortable that he's not even willing to talk to little old me, you know, on the radio on the radio to to talk about some of his ideas and theories and the things that he has learned. And it and to me that is such a slap in the face of science itself because. Uh, like you say, science is about reason and research and discovery. It is not about yeah. marrying theories and is not about religion and belief. Yeah, and unfortunately, these, the thought police, this clique of people that have worked their way into positions of power in uh, not only the American Physical Society, but in the State Department. You imagine the, oh, yeah. the guy operating in the State Department that got a cold fusion conference canceled, uh, working with the American Physical Society. At a time when we need these things more than ever, because we have a planet in peril, you know? Well, let me tell you, it goes beyond that. The uh, American Physical Society holds courses at MIT training future science uh, writers for newspapers on yeah. how to approach science subjects. There you go. It's an effect. It's uh, no different from the Al Qaeda recruiting their uh, their terrorists. Right. And so they, they mm -hmm. give them this slant mm -hmm. that okay, if, if it's anything UFOs, you're supposed to make fun of it. If it's anything on free energy that's going to create a machine that's going to help humanity right. by producing power for free, it must be debunked. You better damn well make fun of it. That's right. And that's exactly what they do. Yeah, and it's been going on for quite some time, and 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 I and I think it's intensifying because there are uh, so many of these things that are tremendous discoveries and tremendous um, inventions and things that are sort of uh, they're trying to make their way onto the radar, and it it almost seems, and this is the conspiracy side of me talking, but it almost seems like you know there's a concerted effort to make sure that a lot of this stuff and i and i guess i mean technology you know not the theories themselves but the but the uh the results of these theories the the technology that may be um available because of them that those things are just not a part of the plan and uh it's probably has to do with control and lots of other things but uh but it's certainly really really or, or frustrating belief. i'm not sure yet if there's a conspiracy or if it's uh just uh people with stupid beliefs oh. 
picture these people with diapers, you right. know, and that's about the size of it. Right. You know? Well, it's really it's really unfortunate, but uh, uh, like like we're talking about, uh, we're not we're not taking it sitting down. Um, you're doing a uh, a lot of great work outside of your regular scope of work over there at uh, Archive Freedom. You and uh, the other group of scientists that are trying to stand up to this. Uh, uh, which is nothing less than censorship, and a lot of this is funded by the National Science Foundation, which is funded with taxpayer money, which I pay and you pay. And uh, quite frankly, th there is, uh, in my opinion, no uh, no reason that uh, certainly people like yourself should be barred from from uh, posting in those archives. Uh, as you say, uh, at the website itself, there are a number of. Uh, um, uh, parameters that have to be met if 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 a if a post is to go up on the archive and yours clearly uh, clearly uh, qualify as as postable material and all that sort of thing and there's just no reason why this stuff shouldn't be shared especially with other scientists who who are the ones that really can uh, 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 if if they were cooperative could really help advance these things. Uh, I I went. Uh because you're supposed to get a sponsor if you're not with a university, which I'm not presently with a university. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to get uh, a scientist who was posted on the archive before to sponsor you, which I followed all their rules, which they had posted there, what you're supposed to do, and I followed them to a T, and I, they, they didn't respond to the first person I gave a sponsor. Then I uh, found a Nobel laureate who was willing to sponsor me. Hmm. Uh, he's the one of the fathers of the Big Bang Theory, Hans Bethe. Yes, came up I'm with the idea sure. of uh, the stars are powered by fusion energy. Sure, I'm familiar. Uh, and they ignored his call. Hmm. He doesn't have email, but he called the office, uh, uh, stating his uh, support. They didn't even respond. Amazing. And finally, I, I went and got a third sponsor, who had posted exactly on the topic of the pioneer effect and in the end they just say we advise you to publish this in a journal <laughs> now why are they applying a different set of standards to me right when everyone else they allow them before publication right. in a journal right 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 and the thing was this is being actively this pioneer effect is being actively discussed on this archive where people will post papers with their explanations Right, and I feel like I'm shut out. Oh, I can't imagine how frustrating that much must be. Actually, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Well, uh, okay. On a on a more positive note, let's talk about the Starburst Foundation then. Mm. Okay, and what uh, and what what we're trying to do to uh, uh, to help uh, alleviate some of this. But let's take a break first, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is Dr. Paul LaViolette, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. All right, this is Mike, and, uh, yeah, we've got about another, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes or so of that interview left. Hope you're enjoying it. In the meantime, this is the Tragically Hip. This is Ahead by a Century, and that's the way I feel about Dr. LaViolette and a number of other people out there that are doing all this great work. So support them and uh, keep listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Silently 
and listen to our thoughts Illusions of someday Cast in a golden light No dress rehearsal This is our life And that's where the was a tragically hip from Trouble in the Hen House. And uh, speaking of Trouble in the Hen House, let's get back to Dr. Paul Laviolette. We're talking about the Starburst Foundation, and uh, this will finish up that interview. Um, if I don't have a chance to say goodnight, um, thanks for listening to the program. Stick around uh, or come around again next weekend. Same time, same place for Radio Orbit. And uh, uh, bring your wallet, bring your checkbook, because I'm going to be begging for money because uh, the pledge drive starts on Monday. So thanks again for listening. Uh, next week we'll be doing a live show from uh, London, England, talking to Nick Cook, the former aerospace uh, 
editor for Jane's Defense Weekly, and again, we'll be talking about some of these new and incredible technologies that are that are peeking their way out from behind the curtain. Get ready for it. It's coming, people, and they can't stop it. Take care. Radio Orbit, KOPN, back in a week. Well, <clears throat> the Starburst Foundation was formed uh, to study the galactic core explosion phenomenon. Ah, okay, and let me cut in real fast again. We, we kind of cut away from the galactic core explosion idea, and gosh, we could talk so much more about this, but let's do a little bit of a, uh, of a quick um, overview of that again, uh, j- just, to, just to clarify what the implications of this theory, uh, theory are, that we have... Uh, well, Re- regularly occurring outbursts from the core that do what? That cause problems? Uh, okay, the cosmic rays come. They, um, when they arrive at the solar system, they, are, um, they begin vaporizing comet material, the frozen debris that's outside the solar system. And it's, space is just loaded. In fact, there's a, a ring of, it's like an asteroid belt outside Saturn. Now they found it. It's just loaded with the frozen cometary debris. Okay. Uh, and this stuff gets vaporized <clears throat> and produces a, uh, a nebula around the solar system. Holy so now God. all the stars that we see normally now become blotted out. Um, or there'll be very strange, weird, grotesque forms. By the way, you know the holiday, Halloween? Mm-hmm. It's a druid holiday or commemorating these range of things were going on. Is that right? And so when you see in Halloween idea of ghosts going across the sky and strange things in the sky, uh, this is a memory of what the sky was looking like. Mm. It was very frightening. I'm very interested. I, I, I did a Halloween special a few weeks ago and we talked about some of these Druidic and Celtic traditions and that actually makes sense now in hindsight. And the whole idea of people going door to door trick or treat, it's because people were reduced to the state of uh, becoming everyone kind of beggars. We, we, you know, when this catastrophe hit, civilization collapsed. And wow. People were going and seeking help from other people. Uh, Incredible. So what it happens now is this stuff is blown into the solar system, and there's a, a sort of a battle that goes on between the solar wind, which is pushing it out, and this galactic wind, which is trying to push it in. Okay, okay. And eventually, uh, let's say the galactic wind initially overpowers this stuff. It comes spiraling into the sun. It forms a cocoon around the sun. So the sun is putting out a lot of its energy, but now it's more infrared. It's very reddish. All this changes climate on the Earth because infrared is more easily absorbed in the atmosphere than than visible light. You get inversion conditions where the atmosphere gets very um, sort of energized, sort of like uh, these super storms that you hear about in mm-hmm. these movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what was going on then. If you study the ice core record, during the ice age, there was 100 times more dust in the air okay. because of the windiness. It's just incredible atmospheric energy at that time. And, and again, that's something that you discovered and it shows up in the ice core, right? Right, right. Uh, uh, I was proposing this interplanetary hothouse effect because now you, you'd be getting not only radiation from the sun directly, but scattered radiation from this nebula of right. dust. You'd have sun in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. which is the, the light of our sun scattered off of these dust particles. 
this is called Guggenshine today. In those days, it would be very bright. Hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so all of these things would have created, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, either cooling effects or warming. Depends. Uh, you have to model this to see the results. Right. But obviously, major change is possible when the, when something like this happens. Well, actually, there's a smoking gun that shows what initially happened. Now, this is the discovery of this acidity peak in the Antarctic ice core. Ah, yes. When I first discovered it, the thing that keyed me in that this had happened was I found that the zodiac's actually a, a cipher, a cryptogram, that talks about this explosion, and it points out with arrow indicators the, the location of the galactic center. Which we talked about a little bit earlier, the, the tail of Scorpio and the arrow of Sagittarius, correct? Yeah. I know to hear so many unbelievable things in a short time from me, you know, probably a lot of the people out there are saying, this, this guy's got to be nuts, we can't believe all this. Well, <laughs> I, it's just I'm trying to put a lot in a short time. Yeah, so I can't present you all the data and so on, but go and see for yourself. Uh, it's in my book, Earth Under Fire. Yeah, and and uh, my 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 audience is sophisticated enough that they will they will not uh, discount the things they're hearing tonight. I I present a lot of information on this program that uh, that 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 might be considered uh, out there or whatever. But uh, um, as we know, and as history has proven over and over again, uh, the people on the fringe, the pioneers, are typically the heretics of their day and uh so uh, look at it this way the proof is in the pudding or whatever the expression is right uh it was from that discovery i f i did the research and made the predictions and now what i say was 13 or 14 predictions have been verified so there must have been some truth to this otherwise why would i get all those things right right we're not just getting lucky here so well what was interesting there was a date indicated because this arrow indicator in the myth uh, says that Scorpius is shooting at the heart of the scorpion. Mm. And if you look at the, the arrow of Sagittarius, uh, it's not aimed presently at the heart of the scorpion, but it was on a certain date. And that comes out fi about 15,800 years ago. Okay, so if, you, so if you look at a star chart and then do the, do the reversal, go back in time 15,000 years, those alignments will, will look better? Yeah, you know how constellations change over time sure. because the stars are moving, right. uh, proper motion of the stars. And, uh, by the way, to do this, I had to do some pretty sophisticated cartography. You have to uh, put it on a galactic coordinate system and then correct for cart uh, cartographic distortion and so on. Hmm. The fact that you're using a Mercator proje projection. My gosh, so very complicated. All this. Right. Uh, and, I mean, you can be off by several hundred years if you don't do the right corrections. But I came up with this date. And I figured, well, it, from the cipher, because it, it's actually telling a story symbolically, okay. it's talking about this being the date of the arrival of this core explosion. Wow. These cosmic rays. This was way back in the 70s or so that I was discovering this. Uh, and then I wrote it up, Earth Under Fire was in print in 79, and Earth Under Fire uh, was in print in the published articles before then, this date I came up with. So now... Very recently, they found an Antarctic ice core. These acidity peaks, they couldn't understand what they were. They spanned about a century uh, where the acidity of the ice had hydro hydrogen chloride, HCl, mm -hmm. and hydrogen fluoride, and were going up and down in concentration over dec a decade or about. 
and uh, they couldn't understand because no volcanic eruption would do this. You know, volcanic eruptions occur radically. They don't put out so much material. This was like 20 times more material than any of the strongest volcanic eruptions anyone knew about. Okay. And when I looked at this, I thought, well, they got their dates a little wrong. You have to update their dating system with the latest findings because now we could peg the Antarctic scale to the Greenland scale, which is very accurately dated. When I did that, you come out with this date 15,800 years ago. Huh. And you notice that this, uh, this regular period of variation matches the solar cycle. Wow. And so that's like a fingerprint showing that this was cosmic. In other words, right, that right. means that those gases and that dust there had to come from space because it's being modulated by the by cycle the of the sun. Right, I understand. I'm with you. And uh, so now this, uh, this paper has been accepted. It's uh, coming out shortly in uh, uh, Planetary and Space Science. It's, uh, you can download it from my website. And uh, this I, I'm also trying to upload to this archive and have been blocked, even again, though it's been accepted right, this, for publication. Right, this is a so paper far they've been blocking me. I'm hoping that it will finally come to their senses to allow this to go on, too. Right, right, right. Oh, well, I mean, I could go on and on about the, the core explosion phenomenon, about the, the burning of the Earth, I and mean, it was a, how it energizes the sun. Well, you know, I guess before we stop talking about it, the question that everyone's going to tell me to ask you is, do we have any idea how frequent this hap how frequently this happens? It's obviously something that's a, a based on cycles. Are we close to the end of a cycle? Are we in the middle of a cycle? What do we think? Well, I think we're overdue for another event, but I can't tell you when it's going to come. Everyone will want to say, okay, can we look out and see it coming? Right. The problem is that it travels towards us at the speed of light. These are cosmic rays. Mm -hmm. So when you see the light from the explosion at the center of the galaxy, the cosmic rays are already They're on your already doorstep. Here. There's yeah. no time to prepare. You might have days before the uh, very energetic cosmic rays start coming in, and they're going to be pushing cosmic dust. The cosmic dust would take maybe a matter of months to migrate inward. Mm -hmm. And then the, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> uh, but with the uh, initial outburst, you could be having because nothing like this has happened in modern times so we can only speculate uh, uh, that it will be accompanied with a gravity wave mm -hmm. uh, and this could cause earthquakes major earthquakes throughout the earth this is the one part of the theory which is difficult to verify because you cannot see gravitational effects too easily in other galaxies mm -hmm. uh, or in our own galaxy it's difficult to find an evidence of it. Like, for example, cosmic rays, you have a record. Right. Because it produces brilliant ten in the atmosphere, and you can get a record of cosmic ray activity, which, in fact, supports this theory, that there were these cosmic ray volleys hitting us at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, but if, uh, if there's earthquakes, things would get shake up, shaken up. Um, then there's the uh, possibility of EMP, uh, Sort of this electromagnetic effect of the arrival of the, the shock front of cosmic rays, mm. which could overload power lines. You'd, so, uh, did you watch this uh, Day of Destruction? Uh, they had a uh, series on TV. No, but uh, but certainly I've seen enough of that type of stuff to be familiar with all yeah. the different things that could happen. And so yeah, this it's kind of stuff uh, we're not just uh, in one 
city, but it could be all across the country, all across several countries of, of certain half of the globe could go dark. Yeah, yeah, these are these are these are global global type uh, issues we're talking about yeah. for sure. Could not would knock out our satellite system. Any satellites that weren't hardened or cosmic ray yep. flares like this. Yeah, fry all fry all kinds of circuitry, do all kinds of things. Here, here come the Flintstones. Fry your cars. You know, all, most automobiles have integrated chips in them. Right, correct. If you were driving something from 20, 30 years ago, you used a distributor, and you wouldn't have any problems. <laughs> but uh, you might be lucky to uh, be able to start your car in the morning. Right. So, okay, uh, so... I mean, we can only guess. Right. Uh, and uh, one of the purposes of Starburst is to... Uh, pre- get the world aware of this, prepare them, and uh, one of the ways is, uh, I try to do it through my book, uh, uh, through the website, uh, we have contacted uh, various UN representatives, uh, gotten back some very n- nice letters of thanks from some of the ambassadors who felt it was something serious that we mm-hmm. should look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so far, there's no university uh, doing research on this. It's sort of like uh, we continue to walk in a fog. Yeah. You know, uh, this this sort of comes up frequently, but the, the, the whole nature of the, of the culture that we're living in right now has this sort of short-term focus, regardless of the institution. If you look at the political institutions or educational institutions, all, uh, the business, all of these things are based on the short term. I mean, even even two terms of a, of a president is only eight years. So to get these, the leaders of these industries, these uh, institutions to, to, uh, to consider and start to uh, care more and, and, and give more attention to these things that are much more uh, big picture, much more sort of long term in, in scope is just it seems to be almost impossible. I would say the only hope is that this thing is several hundred years off. Mm. You know, right. uh, we we can't really tell exactly when it will come, but um, like some people are saying, oh, it's going to come uh, 2012. 2012, right? That's the Mayan the, calendar right, ends right, right. at that time. Right. That's the, that's, uh, that's uh, certainly. One who that. knows? Maybe it could. You know, I think we're in trouble if it comes. <laughs> yeah, we got six years, seven years, so. <laughs> Uh, we should have been building a. Uh, one of the recommendations we have is to build a distributed power network, so we don't depend on power lines. We should have uh, been allowing the sale of uh, free energy machines, <coughs> for example, magnetic motors, mm-hmm. which is a reality. I mean, one time I was on the way to Tesla conference, and I just happened to sit next to a guy who was in charge of security at one of the. Uh, Secret government labs up in, or was it uh, Utah or somewhere? No, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me over there. Like in he describes, Dugan as I'm telling him about some of these uh, free energy machines, he starts telling me about this magnetic motor that they're doing work on, and the darn thing is like two stories high. 
I mean, we're talking mm-hmm. about pretty big project, utility size. Right. But it's classified. He couldn't tell me anything. Right. About Every that. everything under the guise and under the under the umbrella of national security and and uh, and 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 the benefits of those technologies never seem to reach it to the uh, to the people. And, and now they're it, probably so. saying, "Oh, we got to keep this classified because terrorists could use this." Right. That's been the whole idea. Is I I think even since the you know you know even since the the early 1900s and certainly since uh, after World War II. So, you know, right after World War II, everything changed with the National Security Act and lots of other things. But, uh, but I think there's been an ongoing, uh, continuing, uh, concerted effort to make sure that this stuff stays classified, for regardless of what reason. But they are keeping the stuff under wraps, and I don't know if it's uh, if it's strictly for control or if it's greed and power and money and oil industries and these sorts of things. But certainly. There are technologies, and uh, I think they're uh, they're going in the wrong direction. Boy, it sure feels like it, Doctor Leviolent. Sure feels like it. But uh, anyway, hey, look, we are unfortunately about at the end of our time here. Uh, but it has been a fascinating conversation, and we touched on a whole lot of different things. And um, I would uh, once again request all of my listeners to do a couple of things. First of all, go to etheric.com and check out the work of uh, this incredible gentleman who's been nice enough to spend two hours of his time with us tonight and um, his books are available there I own uh, most of them and they're incredible they're great they're very well written as well and sort of take you through these adventures this this the old mythology Paul you know is just incredible stuff it's great reading uh, because it's so it's so well done the way that they did what they did you know yeah, it takes you in a different state of consciousness. It sure does. It, it takes you away, and it, and and uh, and and if you if you give it a chance, uh, certainly some people will be grabbed by that and will recognize the significance of it. It happened to me many years ago. So, and it also provides a nice framework for understanding this ancient science because it uh, uses metaphor and it's really accessible to people even without science background. Right, and uh, you know the whole the whole idea. Uh, of science being separate from mysticism is one of the things that has caused us so much uh, so much trouble I think and I think this is a way to at least start to think about bridging those gaps again between science and mysticism because there really are uh, connections there that can really move us forward I think so well, in any case, okay, thank you very much again, Dr. LaViolette, and uh, for uh, everybody out there, one more time, www.archivefreedom.org and www.etheric.com. Please uh, get familiar with the work of Dr. LaViolette and some of the other incredible people that are doing, doing work uh, in these fields, and um, get familiar, get involved, and uh, and let's... Uh, Let's do some things to help things uh, move in, in, in a more positive direction. I'd love to see that. Okay. <coughs> Thank you very much, Mike. And hopefully, uh, if I can talk you into it, maybe down the road here in a few months, uh, maybe sometime uh, early, mid-next year, we can talk again and uh, get some, uh, some updates and some of the things that we're talking about and, and, and discuss some of this stuff a little bit further. There's so many things that we didn't talk about. I wanted to talk about pulsars. I wanted to talk about... Uh, uh, Oh, gosh, I wanted to talk about the riddle of the Sphinx. I wanted to talk about a lot of things, but um, <laughs> but there's lots of stuff to cover. Give away it. all the stuff in my books. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just give teasers, and we can get people to uh, to go read them themselves to get to, to get the real meat of all this stuff, because it really is cool stuff. So, 
Anyway, Dr. Laviolette, Dr. Paul Laviolette, a fantastic uh, scientist and a great guest, and thank you very much for being with us tonight on Radio Orbit. And uh, like I said, we'll talk to you again sometime, okay? Okay. All right, everybody, uh, this is Mike signing off, Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5 FM. Listen in next week uh, as I talk live uh, from London with Nick Cook uh, about anti-gravity technology.